Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. All right, looks like we are live. Welcome to Standing for Truth. I want to thank everybody for being here tonight. My name is Donnie B, and I am your host and moderator for tonight's Bible translation debate. It is a privilege to have both Will Kinney and Mark Gageton here with me for this important topic. Now, the specific question that we will be discussing tonight is, is the King James Bible the only infallible or inerrant source and norm for theology. Mark and Will, gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. And before we get into the actual debate and opening statements, let's take a minute or two and kind of break the ice, get to know you gentlemen a little bit. Uh, Mark, it is your first time here on the platform. So why don't we start with you, uh, Mark, again, thanks for being here. A little bit about yourself. If you have a ministry channel website, a little bit about that as well. Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Donnie, for having me. And uh, and thank you, Will, for uh, participating in this debate with me. Um, as Donnie mentioned, it's, it's not only my first time here on this channel, but also my first live debate. So I am excited to be here. Uh, I don't suppose Will will go easy on me uh, uh, um, uh, on that regard, but um, uh, I am excited again to be uh, taking part in this discussion. And uh, I'm a, um, a Lutheran a layman. Um, not a whole lot, uh, uh, more to say, um, perhaps my, uh, main interest in this topic is that I am a fan, uh, of the King James. It is my preferred translation. I'm sure Will will give me a hard time for that, um, uh, throughout this, uh, debate for being a fan only and, uh, not a King James onlyist. but, um, so I, I, even though I'm a big fan of the, the King James, I will be defending, um, the proposition that it is not the sole infallible rule and norm for theology tonight. Awesome, Mark. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, love having you, and hopefully we'll have you uh, engage in, in more debates in this debate community for the future. So, uh, Will, this is your second time here. You were here about a month or so ago uh, debating a similar topic or similar question uh, with Turretin fans. So again, thank you for giving us your time. Uh, Will, brother, a little bit about yourself and a little bit about uh, you know your website or ministry and so on. Will, go ahead. Um, I'm a retired high school Spanish teacher. Uh, I'm not a professional Christian in a sense, like I never went to seminary, I'm not a pastor. Uh, I'm just very interested in the Bible. Bible version issue and theology. Uh, married, got two grown boys and three grandchildren. So I'm kind of an old guy and I'm uh, getting closer to going home. And uh, it's good to be here tonight. And I do have a website. It's called, uh, I think you have a link to it there, but another King James Bible believer. So I hope we get into that uh, topic and discuss some theology and differences among the Bible versions and have a, a good time with it. 
Amen. Well said. Well said, Will. Thank you so much, uh, Mark and Will. Thanks for your intros. Your uh, relevant links are, as you said, Will, uh, linked in the description box. So if the audience likes what they're seeing from both Mark and Will, be sure to check the description box in order to uh, find out more about uh, these gentlemen. So uh, for the audience sake, I want to go over uh, tonight's format. We are going to be starting with 12-minute opening statements. And again, the, uh, the question we're debating is, is the King James Bible the only infallible source and norm for theology? Therefore, um, Will will be starting us off with his 12-minute opening statement. Then we're going to have six-minute uninterrupted rebuttals, followed by a more free-flowing and organic discussion where Mark and Will will discuss uh, the topics and points brought up in the openings and uh, rebuttals. Then we're going to have a five-minute concluding statement, and then this is where we get you guys in the audience involved. We're going to have an audience question and answer period. Um, always a lot of fun. Just please, guys, make sure you're tagging me with your questions at Standing for Truth, and that way I won't miss them. Okay, with that being said, Will, we're just going to get right into it. We've got up to 12-minute uh, opening statements, and whenever you're ready, the floor is yours. Okay, thank you. Like I said before, I have not always been a, a King James Bible believer. Um, I just basically thought they were all primarily the same thing, just different words. I didn't know any better. And um, someone presented me with a book, uh, New Age Bible Versions by Gail Ripplinger. And as I started to read it, you know, I, my eyes started to get opened a little bit to this issue. And then, of course, I started reading on the other side and I've read uh, James White's book. And uh, uh, Carson, I think is his name. And Rick Norris and uh, a lot of the guys that are on the other side. Uh, uh, King James, Only a New Cult by James Price, the guy that is one of the chief editors of the new King James uh, version. So, I mean, I, I know quite a bit about the arguments on the other side. And the more I got into this issue and prayed about it a lot and started studying, uh, God, I really believe, started opening my eyes to the absolute truth of the King James Bible. And I, I do believe that it is the complete, the, in fact, the only complete and inerrant Bible in the English language. Uh, lots of people will say, you know, oh, I believe the Bible is inerrant, the inerrant word of God. James White says that. Dan Wallace says that. Uh, a lot of people say it. But when you ask them, well, can you show me a copy of this inerrant Bible that you say you believe in? They won't do it. They can't do it. Uh, James White, for example, he believes that uh, Luke 23, 34, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He thinks that's not inspired scripture and shouldn't belong in the Bible. In spite of the fact that it's in every Bible that's ever existed, it's in the ESV and, of course, all of them. But he does not believe that it should be there. So where is this inerrant Bible? John MacArthur is another one. He's got a great video about inspiration. The Bible's inspired. And he'll go through all the, the pious sounding words. But he'll say in one of his sermons, I've got it. I'm, I've got links to it and everything. But uh, he gets to like say a verse like 6.13, Matthew 6.13, where Jesus ends up the Lord's Prayer with, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And John MacArthur said, well, we don't know whether he said this or not. Uh, there are some manuscripts that have it and some manuscripts that don't. Where's the infallibility of this Bible that he talks about? I mean, he can't show it to you. And, of course, he's a, a Vatican version promoter, promoter. And what I mean by Vatican versions is that uh, they come right out and tell you in their own Greek text that the, 
the critical text that's continually changing all the time is under the direct um, uh, direct direction of the uh, Vatican. They tell you that. And uh, there's a lot of irony there because most Calvinists are using something like uh, the ESV or something. Anyway, um, I honestly believe that the King James Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of God. And uh, that's my point of view, and we're going to discuss some of this. And, and theology, I think there's a, quite a bit of false theology that's found in all the modern versions. They all have untruths in them, and just flat out bad theology in some places. You may find the same truth somewhere in the Bible, but uh, you get specific verses and they just twist and contort and confuse. And that's what the enemy does. Uh, he just kind of sows doubt, confusion, uncertainty. And that's all you're going to find in any of these modern versions. Uh, so that's my point of view, and that's what we're going to discuss. Okay, Will, thank you so much for those opening comments. And uh, Mark, we're going to hand it over to you. And again, up to uh, 12 minutes to uh, you know provide your, your opening statement and uh, lay down the foundation for tonight. Anything not used uh, will be thrown into, into the discussion portion. So, uh, Mark, I do see your uh, slides up and ready to go. Um, so I've got them up on screen for you, Mark. You've got up to 12 minutes whenever you're ready. Go ahead. All right. I'm off mute, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. sounds good. Okay. So uh, thank you again, Donnie and um, Will, for um, uh, participating with me uh, this evening. To begin, I want to point out two errors, which I will be seeking to avoid in tonight's debate. The first is that only the original autographs, which we no longer possess, are to be regarded as the sole infallible rule and norm for theology. This error Will and I both reject, and so will not be the main subject of tonight's discussion. The second error, however, is that of my opponent, that the King James alone is to be regarded as the sole infallible rule and norm for theology. This then is the main point of the controversy and the subject of tonight's debate. And what I'm going to do is to put forward an argument in three parts refuting this error. The first part concerns the doctrine of inspiration, the second, the testimony of the church, and the third from the arguments of my opponent himself. But first, there is an important distinction that must be made, and it is that between the materia and the forma of scripture. Now materia or matter is that from which something arises or of which it consists. In the case of scripture, this refers to the letters, syllables, words, and phrases which go together to constitute scripture and also the doctrines, precepts, and in general, everything contained in the Bible. Forma on the other hand, or form, is the essence or very nature of a thing. And in the case of scripture, it is twofold. The external form is the idiom and style of writing and the internal form is the divine sense or inspired meaning of the text. And it is this form which makes scripture what it is, namely the word of God, and distinguishes it from every other book on earth. Hold on to this distinction because it will undoubtedly crop up throughout the evening. Now, getting into inspiration to give a general definition, it is that absolutely unique and extraordinary action whereby God conveyed to his apostles, prophets, and faithful witnesses whose office he confirmed by many miracles, both the content of that which he wished to be written for man's sake and the very words expressing that content. Hence, we speak of verbal plenary inspiration, plenary indicating that all the contents of Holy Scripture are inspired, whether matters pertaining to faith, morals, his history, chronology, etc. Thus, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, 
and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and so on. And the term verbal indicates that every word in scripture was inspired and dictated by God to or through his human instru instruments. Indeed, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Thus, when we are speaking of the doctrine of inspiration, we must know that it pertains to both the forma and the materia of scripture. And on this basis, I make three claims that I will defend throughout the evening, that the King James Bible translators were not inspired in this sense. Therefore, the King James Bible cannot be the sole infallible rule and norm for theology. In fact, the only way for Will to prove the opposite is to demonstrate that the King James translators were inspired, which I'm sure we will get into later. Secondly, the English King James Bible does not preserve the inspired idiom of the original languages. Indeed, being a translation by nature, it cannot. And third, the original language copies then are to be considered the authentic text of, the, of scripture and the norm and rule for all other versions. But on that note, what of other versions or translations? No doubt from the earliest times, the sacred text has been translated into other languages in order that those books which embrace the salvation of all might be read and understood by all. Christ himself and his apostles approve of this use of scripture when they quote, quote from translations, most notably of all, the Greek Septuagint. And note these two points. First, inspiration and divine authority, which inherited originally in the autographic texts, pertain also to the apographa by virtue of derivation. Second, that while the apographa, that is the original language copies, retain not only the content, but also the very words and idiom of the originally inspired scriptures, Translations preserve only the divine meaning of scripture. Thus, versions of the Bible are the word of God in content and words, but the apographa are the word of God in content, words, and a very idiom. Moving on, getting into the testimony of the church, I first want to share an important point Richard Muller, the great historical theologian, makes concerning infallibility, which I think gives important context to that term and therefore this evening's discussion. He writes that the truth, certainty, and infallibility of scripture belongs to a complex of statements all intended to explain and argue the authority of the text as above all human authority. The question of infallibility, infallibility therefore, represents a subsidiary, subsidiary doctrinal aspect of the larger problem of the text and its interpretation within the context of competing authorities, text, tradition, church, and inward witness. Now from the testimo testimony of the church, I want to establish two things. The belief of God's people of all times in the truth, certainty, and infallibility of scripture, and the eminence, authenticity, and authority of the original language sources. We know from scripture itself that the testimony of the Lord is sure, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, that in writing scripture, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, and that the Spirit, the same who moved those holy men, is himself the truth. Thus, how many times does our Lord correct the false opinions of men and rebukes even the devil himself on the basis of scripture. And among the earliest witnesses of the post-apostolic church, Irenaeus gives this most beautiful testimony, that the Lord of all gave to his apostles the power of the gospel, through whom also we have known the truth, that is, the doctrine of the Son of God, to whom also did the Lord declare, he that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and him that sent me. We have learned from none others the plan of our salvation than from those through whom the gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public and at a later period by the will of God handed down to us in the scriptures to be the rule, ground and pillar of our faith. And Augustine, sometime after this, says, as regards our writings, which are not a rule of faith or practice, but only a help to edification, we may suppose that they contain some things falling short of the truth in obscure and recondite matters, such writings are read 
with the right of judgment and without any obligation to believe, there is a distinct boundary line separating all productions subsequent to apostolic times from the authoritative canonical books of the Old and New Testaments. If we are perplexed by an apparent contradiction in scripture, it is not allowable to say the author of this book is mistaken, but either the manuscript is faulty or the translation is wrong or you have not understood. In all of this, let me ask you, listener, what is the reference? It is not the King James Bible, for the King James Bible did not yet exist. At this point, then, let me offer the following rule. It is not to be approved if someone invents for himself a doctrine which conflicts with all antiquity and for which there are clearly no testimonies of the church. KJV onlyism conflicts with all antiquity and clearly has no testimonies of the early church. Therefore, it is not to be approved. But the most important point established from the testimony of the church for our purposes is that that of the eminence of the original language sources and the apostles themselves demonstrate for us the true salutary and apostolic way of using the versions for they used and quoted often the then common edition of the Septuagint, but they did not make it authentic against the sources themselves, but derived the emphasis and peculiarity of meaning from the sources if the translators had departed from them in any place, as can be shown with many examples. Thus, Augustine rightly says, the great remedy for ignorance of proper signs is knowledge of languages, and men who speak the Latin tongue need two other languages for the knowledge of scripture, Hebrew and Greek, that they may have recourse to the original texts if the endless diversity of the Latin translators throws them into doubt, and many other ancient writers testify similarly. Thus, whenever controversies arose concerning versions, the orthodox response was always back to the sources. Indeed, Perhaps the most significant of them all at the time of the Reformation, when the papists attempted to foist upon the church as the sole infallible rule and norm for theology, the Latin Vulgate, the blessed reformers rejected this with all of their intellect and might, and instead pointed back to the sources as the church had always done. <clears throat> Finally, briefly, we prove our position from some of the arguments of my opponent himself. In an article on his website titled, Can a Translation Be the Inspired Words of God? Will writes, it should be noted that Timothy did not have the originals, yet what he had in his home is referred to as inspired scripture. In fact, in no case of all the references in the New Testament to the scriptures that people read and believed, is it ever referring to the originals only. On this, he and I can agree. And I would only also point out that nowhere are they ever referring to the King James Bible. He goes on, However, the Greek is not my final authority. There is no such thing as the Greek or even the Hebrew. All who go that route end up not having a complete and inerrant Bible. I do believe that God worked in history and gave us his perfect and inerrant words in the English text of the King James Bible. Elsewhere, he states it even more explicitly. We defend only the text and the meaning of the King James Holy Bible. Notice here, the text, that is the materia, the very words and idiom, as well as the forma, the sense, and meaning, not of the original language sources, but of the King James English Bible. In his article titled, <clears throat> The Printing Errors Ploy, he asks the question and responds, has the King James Bible ever been revised? Simple answer, no. We will challenge this claim later. But he goes on, the simple fact is the King James Bible has never been revised. There have been different editions of the King James Bible, in which the Gothic type was changed to Roman type, the spelling of various English words was updated, some minor punctuation changes were made, and several minor printing errors were corrected. But notice this, but the underlying Hebrew and Greek texts have never changed at all. Interesting. 
Does he defend the text and the meaning of the King James Bible by having recourse to the underlying Greek and Hebrew? Indeed, he does. Commenting on 1 Samuel 18, 27 in the 1611 edition, he asks, how do we know it was a printing error? Simply because the words and went are in the Hebrew text. What is this other than to demonstrate in practice that not the English of the King James Bible is the sole infallible rule and norm, but rather the original language sources? One last example for now. In an online discussion with Will Kinney, he had stated, the Cambridge KJB is the inerrant words of God, not the Oxford. I would not recommend the Oxford printings because they still have a printing error in them that was not corrected. What's that about, you ask? In an article, he explains that the Oxford and Cambridge versions differ on whether there are 13 or 14 cities listed in Joshua 19. And how does he resolve this, text, this textual, that is, material problem? He asks, are we to toss out the doctrine of an inerrant Bible solely on the basis of an occasional printing error that can easily be corrected by comparing the underlying Hebrew and Greek texts of the King James Bible? I think not, he answers. In conclusion, let me ask, on the basis of the doctrine of inspiration, the testimony and history of the church and my opponent's own arguments, are we to conclude that the King James Bible is the sole infallible rule and norm for theology? I think not. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate that opening statement. And we're now moving into six-minute rebuttals. So we're going to give uh, both debaters the opportunity to have a six-minute uninterrupted response. And Will, I am going to uh, unmute you here. And whenever you're ready, the floor is yours. Six minutes. So can I ask Mark questions during this time or just make a presentation and a rebuttal? Right. Just a presentation rebuttal. Then we'll move into questions. Okay. All right. Well, all the references that he mentioned, um, quoting ancient fathers or whatever, they don't identify anything specific, um, any specific text. In general terms, they talk, and so did Mark. He talks about how that the original copies are inerrant. Now, he used the present tense verb, are. I don't, I mean, he must realize this. There are thousands, literally thousands of variant readings found in all these copies. Now, if he says the apocrypha, or, or excuse me, the, uh, what do you call them? The apographs, I guess that, that's what comes from the originals. He says that the apographs are the source of truth or inspired. Problem is there are thousands, literally thousands of these apographs out there. Uh, they differ radically one from another and if you were to ask, you know, can you show me a copy in the Greek of what you honestly believe is the complete and the inerrant words of God? Can you do so? And I haven't found anybody that, that can. I'd like to see what Mark comes up with. And when I was making reference to uh, the Greek and the Hebrew of, that underlies the King James Bible, please note that I said that underlies the King James Bible because there are different Greek readings. And uh, frequently, versions like the ESV particularly, NIV, NASB, they often reject the Hebrew readings that are found in all Hebrew texts, and not even in the same places. And they'll add to them. Uh, the King James Bible does not do that. And so when I'm talking about the Greek or the Hebrew, uh, I'm looking up specific words that are found in the, the text that underlie the King James Bible. Uh, you will not get from James White or anybody else uh, where they will show you a copy of any Greek 
that they honestly believe is inerrant, and nor will they do so with the Hebrew. They believe the Hebrew has been corrupted as well. So to me, it seems like that position, you're, you're advocating for this phantom Bible. It doesn't exist. Uh, the originals never did make up an entire Bible, not even close. And so you either believe that God has worked through history and that he has preserved his words as he promised, and uh, we actually have them in a real book that's in print that you can pick up and hold in your hands and read and believe every single word. I don't believe Mark or any modern version promoter has that. Um, I've asked many of them. You know, I'm in, I'm in this debate all the time on Facebook. And uh, if you ask them, you know, can you show me a copy of what you really believe in any language, the Greek, the Hebrew included, that you really believe is the complete and inerrant words of God, they won't do it. They just won't. They don't have it. They know they don't have it. And they're just pretending that they do. Um, let's see. I'm not sure what else he brought up. You know, he keeps saying that the, the source, you know, is the Greek or the Hebrew. Well, show us this source. Um, well, this gets into a question. So I don't, I don't know if I can go there. I have to wait on it. I guess I'll do it before I ask him this question because his site, you know, at the, the church that he goes to, the Faith Lutheran Church in Plains, Texas, this is on their website. It's a very typical statement. But it says the entire Bible is, notice present tense, is the inerrant, inspired, and holy word of God and is the source and norm of Christian doctrine. Okay, can you show us a copy of this inerrant Bible that you say you believe in? This is, it uses a present tense. And if you ask uh, any modern version user to do that, they simply cannot do it. And that's my point. You know, I believe that God has preserved his words. Yes, I refer to the Hebrew and Greek, but I'm referring to the Hebrew and Greek that underlies the King James Bible. Those specific texts. And uh, nothing else, because there are no originals. So it should be interesting when we get into the discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Will. Appreciate that uh, rebuttal there. We're now going to hand it uh, over to Mark. You get equal time, six minutes. And then we're going to jump into uh, a discussion where you gentlemen can ask each other questions and discuss the topic. So, Mark, whenever you're ready, you have six minutes. Thank you. Uh, so I don't want to uh, respond to his rebuttal, although he didn't. He didn't. Uh, uh, Will did not go into a whole lot in his opening statement, but uh, I did want to um, make some comments about uh, inerrancy. You'll notice that I, I did not uh, use the term inerrancy a whole lot in my opening statement, and um, so inerrancy itself is a relatively young word, and so I preferred um, actually the uh, infallibility, and I gave some context. Uh, to that with the um, with the Mueller quote that I brought up earlier um, to, to give a little bit of uh, background why I prefer the term infallibility. And so uh, regarding inerrancy, I'm going to rely on the research of the late Arthur Carl Peepcorn. And he writes that on the surface, it looks like a transliteration of the Latin inerantia, uh, pardon my Latin or lack thereof, and that in his surveying of the standard lexicons of classical Latin, they disclose no use of the word. He points out that related words, however, 
in the classical literature often suggest a poetic or metaphorical meaning according to etymology. The Oxford Dictionary first lists the English adjective inerrant in 1652 in technical astronomical reference to a fixed star. It wasn't until 1837, however, that inerrant was used in the modern sense of exempt from error or free from mistake. The same source lists the abstract noun inerrancy as occurring in English for the first time in the introduction to the critical study and knowledge of the Holy Scriptures where, ironically enough, it is stated, absolute inerrancy is impracticable in any printed book. The Oxford English Dictionary again gives the first occurrence of the term in an, in an explicitly religious context in 1865, where it is said, the old ultramontane doctrine of the in inerrancy of the Pope, that is that of his preservation from error. Um, but perhaps, however, what is of more importance is inerrancy's reference. As soon as it enters theological parlance, immediately it has reference to the original autographs exclusively, which I think is important. Theodore Latus, in his helpful work, the ecclesiastical text remarks, the change of one landmark word in theological terrain can alter the entire landscape, such as what has happened with the substitution of the non-confessional word inerrancy for the Catholic term infallible. The change of but one word has resulted in the complete destruction of the classic Protestant view of scripture. All this is to say that the term is simply not that important to my theological vocabulary, which is why I've not preferred it this evening and instead prefer the term infallibility. And in fact, while I may not agree entirely with Peepcorn, with, with all that Peepcorn has to say on the matter, I think, he, I think he makes this valid point. The term proves theologically irrelevant. He states, a little noticed footnote in the doctoral dissertation of Robert Preuss points out that the dogmaticians use the same arguments and proof texts for the inerrancy of scripture as for its inspiration. This statement illustrates the thesis that the sacred scriptures are free of error is for the dogmaticians basically a negative way of affirming inspiration. The original documents are inaccessible and irrecoverable, which of course Will and I both agree on. The ascription of inerrancy to these documents is therefore an irrelevant and ultimately superfluous predication, which says nothing more than that inspiration is the act of the Holy Spirit and that God is truthful. That the sacred scriptures are the word of God is a maximum statement. We cannot say more than this by affirming that the irrecoverable original documents of the sacred scriptures were inerrant. Um, so I realize I talked a little fast. I was still kind of in my opening statement mode, but uh, so that gives me a little more time here um, to uh, add some, some additional remarks. Um, I, where, where do I want to go from here? Um, again, I, I want to bring this back to the debate topic at, actually at hand tonight, which is that uh, whether or not the King James Bible alone is the sole infallible rule and norm for theology. And so um, uh, I, I bring up these statements concerning inerrancy um, to, to say that it's, it's not something I'm going to be defending um, really this evening. What I brought up in my opening statement was um, uh, the, the belief in the infallibility of scripture. And if you think back to the Muller quote that I gave earlier, um, it puts it in the context of that holy scripture is uh, truthful, that it leads us into truth uh, because the author thereof is truth himself. And um, this again has been the uh, belief of the church of all ages um, prior to 
this uh, new non-confessional term, inerrancy, entering into the theological vocabulary. Um, but many have um, uh, clinged on to it, and I think um, uh, to a great detriment and um, would prefer to see a return to um, more uh, historical theological terms. Uh, so I guess I will end there. Uh, All right, point. Mark, thank you so much. Uh, Will and Mark, that concludes the opening statements and the rebuttals. Now we are moving into an open discussion. I'm excited for this. Everybody's favorite part of a debate. Lots of interesting points and topics to discuss. So uh, why don't we hand it to Will to ask the first question or pick the first topic since Mark just ended with his eight-minute rebuttal. And uh, gentlemen, the floor is yours. Go ahead. Okay, I think when you bring up this issue of infallible versus inerrant, I, I think there's a, it's a, a difference with no distinction at all. What is, the what is the difference, in your opinion, between infallible, which you do use, you're, although your church site says inerrant, but what is the difference in your, in your understanding between infallible and inerrant? Simply put, the uh, uh, historical understanding of infallibility uh, does not mean that the uh, um, sources have to be absolutely 100% free of all error um, regarding, um, you know, text textual variants. Um, uh, so they certainly cannot be in error regarding um, articles of uh, doctrine, especially the chief articles. Uh, however, if there is an error, uh, a textual variant, the question is, what are you going to compare it to? Are you going to compare it to the English of the King James Bible, or are you going to compare it to another Greek text, Greek or Hebrew text? And that's really the subject of tonight's discussion, is okay. what is the rule and norm? Um, okay, can I answer that or address that, your, your point? Uh, yeah, go for it. Okay. Yeah. Two things. First of all, if you look up the words in any dictionary, yeah, infallible, in Errant, they both mean exactly the same thing. In fact, they're defined by one another. Inerrant, American Heritage Dictionary, incapable of erring, infallible, contains no errors. I can go dictionary after dictionary after dictionary, then I'll get to uh, infallible. Uh, synonyms for infallible. Uh, Vocabulary.com, unfailing, unerring, inerrant. Webster's Dictionary, infallible, not fallible, not capable of erring, entirely exempt from liability to mistake, unerring, inerrable. They, exact, they mean exactly the same thing. And, and when you talk about the standard, what standard do we have? The problem with your view, you don't have a standard. You do not have a standard that you can show us. You don't have any particular Greek text that you can show us that you really believe is the inerrant words of God. It's an invisible phantom standard. It doesn't exist. And all, how you have is your own understanding, your own personal preferences, but you cannot show us this standard. And I believe there is a standard I can show to anybody. And there it is in the King James Bible. It's been around for over 400 years. And there are thousands and thousands of people who believe it is the inerrant words of God. It's the most printed book in history by far. 
It was used by missionaries to carry the gospel to many nations and translate it into foreign languages. Uh, there's nothing like the King James Bible at all. So what is your standard? Uh, yeah, so just to respond to uh, your um, uh, uh, beginning comments there concerning the distinction or what you would say the lack thereof between infallibility and inerrancy. Um, the thing is, is that theological, uh, what I'm giving is a theological, a historical theological definition or understanding of infallibility. And let me read the Richard Muller quote I'm again. I'm giving you a dictionary definition. This is what the English word means. Yes, but do you go to a dictionary to... I don't care uh, about the, what some theologian said who never identified the Bible, just talks in vague terms about... Do you go to the dictionary to define the Trinity, for example? Um, or do you define it theologically? Um, it's in the so, dictionary. It just tells us what it means. Okay. And I agree with it. Is that, is that your... Sole infallible rule and norm for theology. The no, it's for defining what words mean. I don't some, need some guy, some theologian talking in vague terms about uh, infallibility, and he has no standard that he can show us. You don't okay. have a standard. Words, words can have different meanings in different contexts, and so we're I this is that. context, right? So, Richard Muller again. Um, the truth, certainty, and infallibility of Scripture belongs to a complex of statements all intended to explain and argue the authority of the text as above all human authority. This is what we mean when we speak of uh, infallibility. And um, so the King James, uh, we, we must distinguish between a derivative kind of infallibility, which the King James has, being that it um, still presents to us the inspired sense of scripture um, and the uh, infallibility that inheres in the originals themselves. Now, I'm not here you to- You have those originals that you I'm can not here to that. Standard. Um, I'm Again, I'm not here to, to defend that. Well, you're talking about a standard, right? You mentioned it. You're the one who brought it up. What I'm saying is you don't have one. Um, you don't have I mean, I have that I showed- I have the same standard that I showed that you yourself use when you reference the Greek and the Hebrew to resolve. I'm, refer I'm referencing specific Greek and Hebrew that underlies the King James Bible, not yes. the Greek and Hebrew that underlies a lot of the fake modern versions. Okay, so I asked you this question actually during your debate with Turrets and Fan, and I said, okay, well, what if I tell you that the underlying Greek and Hebrew of the King James Bible is my standard? Would you accept that? No. Give me an honor. Uh, yeah. Let me explain why. Let me explain why. Okay. If you go, say, TR guys that are out there that have the Scrivener text or whatever, there are many different, you know, TRs. So let's go with the TR text. If you go with the Greek, I'm not a Greek apostle. I can read Greek. Okay. But it, that makes you the authority on how you're going to translate it. You can translate the Greek in many different ways. We see that. And you come up with opposite meanings sometimes from the same Greek text. So, no, that's not my standard. And we don't go around preaching to people in Greek. You don't either. We don't, we don't speak to people in Greek. We don't po post things on uh, Facebook or anything. We're not talking in Greek now. We're talking in English. And so I believe that God guided the King James translators to the right text, Greek and Hebrew, and to the right translation. And his inerrant words of God is found in the English text, as I said, and you posted, in the King James Bible. You, on the other hand, have no standard you can show us. So you gave me that same answer um, when you debated Turton Fan, and, and you actually you don't actually escape this problem because 
the King James translators um, gave their understanding of the text. Now, you, by God, I believe they were guided by God. Yes, and that really, and this was the first point um, that I made in my opening statement that if you want to defend the inerrancy of the King James Bible, what you must do is demonstrate that it is inspired immediately in the same way that the apostles and prophets were inspired when they originally wrote. That's uh, not true at all. Oh, it's absolutely not true. Because inerrancy hangs on inspiration, immediate inspiration. Um, inerrancy consists not only of God preserving the uh, human authors from error, but also giving them the exact words that he wants them uh, to write for all possibility. They weren't creating new scripture. They were translating. Does the Bible teach that a translation can be the inspired words of God? Do you know if it does or not? Does the Bible itself teach that a translation can be the inspired words of God? Again, derivatively. Um, so far as, so far as it um, uh, adheres to the uh, inspired sense or the divine meaning of the original text. Okay. So, yes. Right. We see I, that. I right. We see an example of that. There's several. The Bible. Um, presents to us the inspired sense of Holy Scripture. But the problem is, is that inerrancy applies not only, uh, and immediate inspiration, in fact, applies not only to the sense, as I pointed out in my opening statement, but it applies also to the very words. Um, I agree. This is why, this is why um, as I mentioned in my opening statement, a translation by nature cannot be um, inspired immediately in the sense that the originals were inspired because it does not give us the exact same words and phrases and order and syllables that the original uh, authors gave us. By okay, let me stop you right there and, and address that issue. This is, that, let, let, me, let me just say, and this is why you must prove that the uh, producers, I would say, I wouldn't just say translators, um, of the King James Bible were inspired. And this this actually would have been my first question for you is, can you explain for us your theory of inspiration as it pertains both to the original authors and those involved in the production of the King James? And you might tell us who was inspired, to what all does their inspiration extend, um, et cetera. Okay, two things. One, first of all, we see in Acts like 22, Paul speaks in the Hebrew tongue right? He's addressing a whole crowd, almost a whole chapter in there in Hebrew tongue. Yet the whole thing was translated into Greek. We have no idea what the Hebrew said, except for what we have a translation into Greek. And that translation itself was the inspired words of God. And your second point, you brought out the, the verse where it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Okay. I believe that. By definition, if something is scripture, it has to be inspired. If it's true scripture, it has to be inspired. And so your point of view apparently is there is no inspired Bible because we don't have the originals. And you can't show us a standard in the Greek or the Hebrew or anything else that are your, your absolute 100% true, complete words of God. You simply do not have a standard to show us. And so I believe that God in history, I believe in a sovereign God, that he worked in history, purified his word because there were many corruptions that came in starting very early, 
and that the final product that we have is the English text of the King James Bible. And I have a whole article on called Absolute Standard that shows there are things that are true about the King James Bible that are not true of any other Bible at all in history. And that God has set his mark on this book far more than any other. And I believe it is the inerrant words of God. And I believe that you cannot show us a copy in any language of what you really believe are the inspired and inerrant words of God. Well, you brought up um, uh, uh, a verse in Acts, and you said that it was translated from the Hebrew. Was it originally written in Hebrew? No, but he spoke in Hebrew. The whole discourse was given in Hebrew, and it was translated into Greek. What we have is the Greek. The, the translation itself is the inspired words of God. A translation can be the inspired words of God. That was my point. <clears throat> so it translated from the Hebrew into the Greek. Now, my contention, again, is not um, the, the, the inspiration uh, is when God um, gives us that very writing. Um, that, that's where it takes place. Now, okay, when it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Yes. Okay? What are you referring to? Not the King James Bible. What are you referring to? Not the King James Bible. I mean, I didn't ask you what you're not referring to. I asked you, what are you referring to? The, um, what, what am I referring to or what yeah. is Paul referring to when he says that? Yeah. What is he referring to? What are you, when you, you, you quoted the verse itself. Apparently you believe it. So what are you referring to when you say all scripture is given by inspiration of God? He was referring to the original language, um, uh, most likely copies um, that existed at that, that time. Okay. Do you have any copy that you can show us that you really believe is, is the inspired words of God? Uh, yes. Every faithful copy um, of the original language is, original language sources, whether uh, immediately or immediately, uh, is the inspired word of God preserved in the original inspired language. Okay, can you show us a copy? Can you tell us the name of it? I can't show you one because I don't have one with me here, but... Can, can you know the, the name of it? Can you tell us if we can go out and buy one? Uh, again, I, I, would, um, I would say the uh, underlying text of the King James Bible. Okay, so not the underlying text of the ESV that your church uses or the NIV, New American Standard, New King James. I haven't examined those ex exhaustively. Then you don't know very much about this issue because they're very different. Well, and this is why my argument has not been um, really a textual critical argument. Um, again, the question for the evening is, is the, King, the English King James Bible the sole infallible rule and norm for theology? And... Um, you know, I asked you a question concerning inspiration on which infallibility, inerrancy, all the properties of Holy Scripture depends. Mm -hmm. And you have not answered that question for me. Can I, what is the question? Let me answer it. Can you explain for us your theory of inspiration as it pertains both to the original authors and those involved in the production of the King James? So, for example, who was inspired? To what all does their inspiration extend? Um, those okay. kinds of questions. Let me answer it then. I believe that the originals, Hebrew and Greeks, uh, were inspired, were inspired, okay? They don't exist anymore. I believe God is sovereign in history. I believe his promises. He said he would preserve his words. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. 
I believe that God guided the King James translators to the exact right Hebrew and Greek text and to the right translation. They were not inspired in the sense that they were writing new scripture. All they were doing was translating what was inspired and what remains to be inspired, even in translation. How do you know that the King James uh, translators were inspired in that in that sense, that they were immediately inspired by the Holy Spirit to prove or to, uh, sorry, uh, select perfectly the uh, textual basis for their, you could say revision or translation, but um, as well as translating it perfectly. Uh, how do you know and what's your uh, basis for Okay, that? I can't prove that they were, nor can you prove that they were not. Well, so what, what can be shown is that the, the, the proof that the uh, prophets and apostles and the faithful witnesses who uh, God worked through to give us inspired scripture, um, mm. the proof was that their, their office was confirmed with great miracles. Okay, and, I have no argument with that. That was what we had in the originals okay, that no see, longer exist. Do we see the same thing with the King James translators? I believe we do. We see truth. Truth is an important part. You mentioned truth. 100% truth. That's the issue. God, how did God confirm their office as perfectly inspired translators? Or they weren't apostles. They weren't prophets. They weren't giving new scripture. Okay, But God preserved his word, and he did that, I believe, through the King James Bible translators. Everybody out there, even with their own versions, they think that maybe God's working through them, going to guide them, give them the right text and the right translation. Supposedly, they're trying their best, but they end up in failure. Um, you know, they weren't apostles. They weren't writing new scripture, but God, they were instruments in God's hand to preserve his inspired words. I'm, I'm not claiming that they were writing new scripture, but the, the question is concerning inspiration. So my understanding of inspiration is that God not only preserved the original writers from all error, but he gave them exactly the the exact words he wanted them to put down. I have no problem with that. And he confirmed the office of these uh, apostles and prophets with great miracles. Yeah, and those are the originals, okay? They no longer exist. That's how, the, that's how we know that their testimony is true, that they were testifying to the truth, that okay. they were God's instruments. Now, can you show us a similar kind of process that took place with the King James translators? No, and I don't have to because they weren't apostles and prophets. So it's just an unfounded claim. I believe there's a lot of evidence for that claim. You keep talking about your standard that you don't have. You have nothing at all to show us. Is the evidence that you can present similar to the kind of evidence that we have that, you know, for example, uh, the Apostle Peter who healed people, um, that they were inspired? Is, is the evidence that you have similar uh, uh, of a similar kind of um, uh, degree. Mark, you keep going over the same point. They were not apostles and prophets. They weren't used to give us the originals. And, but again, inspiration is a, an absolutely unique um, event or process. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. If the King James Bible is scripture, then by definition, it's inspired of God. All scripture that is the when the apostles and prophets originally wrote didn't say that they were inspired. No, no text, no Bible says that. 
the Bible itself, even your ESV or whatever, they're going okay, to Okay, so the ESV then is inspired by God. If it's true scripture, it is, but it's not. I can show a lot of places where it is not. You just said all scripture. Yeah, if it's true scripture, not all fake writings, not all man-made uh, corruptions, you know, they're not inspired of God. You can't have two completely different numbers in the same verse, and both of them are inspired of God. He either did one or the other, or he didn't do either one of them. We don't know what he wrote. But you can't have two different numbers in the same verse, or you can't have a verse and then a non-verse for the same verse, and both of them be inspired, both what was written and both what was omitted. They're not both inspired, so they can't both be the word of God. We could get into some specifics, if you'd like, about doctrinal issues. That was what this is about. But I wanted to point out the fact that you have no standard that you can show us. You have nothing that is inspired or at least a theoretical standard, but you don't accept it. A theoretical Bible? That's your phantom Bible. It doesn't well, no, exist. I mean, you, you appeal to it. Why can't I appeal to it? What am I appealing to? The underlying text of the King James King Bible. James Bible. Yeah, that's okay, what so if I appeal to it and I say that's my standard, why don't you accept it? I already went over that. I answered that. If you get just the Greek, there are many different ways. And, and you answered it by saying that it at that point, it depends on my own reason or, um, you know, uh, I, I don't remember exactly how you phrased it, but. Yeah, your personal preferences. What I pointed out is that you don't get around that that issue unless you prove that the King James translators were in, were in fact immediately inspired of the Holy Ghost. In the same way, I don't that believe that they were. They weren't writing new scripture. In a in a same kind of process by which God preserved them from all error, gave them the exact words He wanted to be written down, and confirmed their office with great miracles. I don't know about any miracles. You you were doing fine up to that point, you know. But I <laughs> I believe that He preserved His words. Yeah. God used them. Can I prove it? No. Can I, you know, but I believe there's a lot of evidence that points to that direction. How do you know that the original scriptures were inspired? Both of us only know that by faith. There's no evidence for it? You don't have them. They for can't example, exist. Is there, what, what's the evidence that Jesus was who he said he was? It's in the Bible. Okay. Okay, and what's the evidence that the Bible, that the, the original authors of scripture their testimony is true all we have is faith that we believe that what we believe what god says in his book he says that he inspired his words all give all scripture is given by inspiration of god god cannot lie so we go by faith we believe what he said you either believe it or you don't did the original writers demonstrate that their test or was there any evidence that what they were saying is true a whole lot of them, no. We don't have anything about them. Didn't perform miracles, a bunch of them in the Old Testament. Moses did, but not all the prophets did. Elijah, uh, Elisha. Some of them did and some of them didn't. Peter, you know? Paul. Well, even the, Elisha, they didn't even write scripture. You're going off in a, in, into the weeds here. Yeah, so, that's fine. I, yeah, I think we've kind of covered that um, um, topic. Uh, you can't demonstrate that um, the translators are inspired in the way that you're saying they are. Yeah, nor can you disprove it. I can say that God gave no um, great miracles or testimonies to confirm that what they did was 
um, inspired in the same way the original writers were inspired. I agreed with that already several times. They weren't writing new scripture. You want to get into some specifics on doctrine? What what is uh, what do you want to get into? Well, I, I believe uh, you know again. I believe that there are false doctrines taught in the fake Bibles. Okay, I've got a bunch of them. You want to look at one? Um, sure. Give me an example. Okay, let's take a look at Daniel nine twenty six. Let me bring it up here on my. Uh, I'm not defending uh, any other scripture, by the way. Uh, okay, so then what's the point of, of getting into this doctrinal discussion? Well, I, I mean, is there somewhere you want to go with it that doesn't um, uh, put me in a position that I'm not actually defending? I don't know exactly what you're defending because so far you don't have a standard you can show us. So I don't know what the original language sources that no longer exist and that you can't show us. Oh, there are a lot of original language sources that exist. So you mean the, the copies, the thousands of copies out there with thousands of variant readings. That's right. your authority? which we turn to when we have questions concerning, um, you know, whether a translate, whether a translation is actually accurate. Um, and, you know, if, if two uh, manuscripts don't agree with one another, we don't compare them to the King James Bible. We compare them to other original language manuscripts. Okay. Do you think if by doing that, comparing it, you're going to come up with the same conclusion as everybody else? Because your modern versions are full of stuff like that, where they're comparing different uh, texts, Hebrew and Greek texts, and they come up with different conclusions. One goes one way and the other one goes the other way. If we did do this, I'm curious, gentlemen, because the title, again, is the King James Bible, the only infallible or inerrant source and norm for theology. So I know for myself and especially the audience, because we have a ton of questions that have come in on specific doctrines that the King James Bible would be correct on. But um, let's say maybe some of the other versions would be incorrect on or uh, change the meaning, something like that. If you gentlemen wanted to discuss a couple of the specifics, um, yeah, but it, it, it's, it's up to you. This is more free flowing. So I, I want to be non-intrusive, but just looking at the live chat, there's a lot of people that are, uh, would certainly be interested in, in shifting towards that. Sure. Uh, yeah, no, uh, no problem at all. And um, you know, what I would say though, uh, to begin is that we have to define what we're talking about when we say doctrines, you know, are we talking about, oh, are there 13 or 14 cities in um, Joshua 19.2 or, or whatever the text was? Well, uh, it's not really a doctrine. It's not a chief argument of faith. And Will, no has, argument actually, here. Will has actually um, already admitted in the past that he believes that the modern versions, which I'm not necessarily defending, uh, can lead people into truth, that they do contain... No, I said they can they can find the gospel. The gospel is found in any Bible. Not in say truth. I said the gospel. Okay, I would I'm argue right. that the um, chief articles of the faith can be defended from any uh, faithful version. Okay, I want to look at specific doctrinal passages, right? Okay. Uh, well, I believe they are corrupted in the fake Bibles. Okay, what's the doctrine that you're talking about? Okay, let's take a look at... Uh, Daniel 9, 26. It's a messianic prophecy, clear messianic prophecy. Uh, it says, uh, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Right? 
Okay, let's take a look at some of these other ones. Uh, the ESV, NIV, New American Standard, Legacy Standard, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Now, there's a big difference between not cut, it shall be cut off, but not for himself, and cut off and shall have nothing. What's the difference? You don't what see the doctrine in question. Okay. Why was Messiah cut off not for himself? Uh, the Bible itself is our great commentator on itself. But what what is the difference as you see it, and what is the article of the faith that's in question here? The um, substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the atonement. That's, Why did he die? That's what this is talking about? Absolutely. He was cut off, but not for himself. Okay, and so the English Standard Version, which says, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Shall have nothing. What does that um, mean? It didn't... Does that deny substitutionary atonement? Yeah, shall have nothing. It, does, it doesn't even address it. Okay, so can, have nothing. Are there, there other, are there other passages of scripture that uh, clearly teach substitutionary atonement in the English Standard Version? That's what my point was. Says you can find truth in different areas. I'm talking about specific verses of scripture. Yeah, maybe let's stick to Daniel nine because that's definitely an interesting one. So yeah, let's let's definitely do a little more in-depth discussion on that one. That's a good point. Uh, continue. Commentary, let me get this commentary. All right, Mark. About cut off. The, the King James Bible is its own best commentary. Cut off. In that great prophetic chapter about the substitutionary death of our Lord Jesus Christ, Isaiah 53, we read the following words in Isaiah 53, 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. So he was cut off, but not for himself. Fits in perfectly with Isaiah 53, 8. Okay. okay. It's talking about the substitutionary death of Christ. Is the substitutionary atonement there uh, clearly in Isaiah 53 in the ESV? That's not my point. You're missing my point. We're talking about specific verses where they water down, distort, weaken true doctrine. Okay. We're talking about the truth here in. Okay. And and so, so my response to that is well, one, scripture uh, it it gives us doctrine in many different places in many ways, and so when you come to a passage, which if you say that uh, Daniel, um, I'm sorry, Daniel nine there is not right, the question is, where do we go to determine? what's right or, or which which version is correct and the answer is we look to the original hebrew or uh i'm assuming is hebrew there in daniel 9. okay you don't have a copy of the original hebrew and much less of the of the original greek your esv and niv and they all believe the hebrew is corrupt there are different readings found in the hebrew and they frequently change it and add to it but let, let's go back here. Just a couple things on the Hebrew here, all right? There's no verb in the Hebrew text of Daniel 9, 26. Cut off, but not for himself. There's no verb there. Which which Hebrew text? You just said... Any of them. Any, any of them on this one. But the, what underlies the King James Bible, there is no verb in that, in that verse. 
but not and shall have nothing. They put a verb in there. They changed the meaning, and it, it contradicts that. Yet he was cut off. What did he do? He purchased his people. He redeemed God's elect. Okay, all of us at the cross. So and have nothing. No, he purchased his bride at the cross, and that's why he was cut off, but not for himself. A whole bunch of versions read that way. You wouldn't believe some of the weird translations you're going to find. I mean, out there, just amazing. But cut off for himself. Let me tell you some that read that way. The modern Greek translation reads that way. Uh, Third Millennium Bible, International Standard Version. There's a, a new one, Orthodox Jewish Bible, 2011. Okay. Um, and this is specifically why I accepted this debate um, and the, question, the, the actual question at hand. What is the, the rule and norm for theology? Because when you start comparing version to version and they disagree with one another, then you have to look at a rule and norm, an objective rule and norm. And the you question keep bringing is, that up, but brother, you don't have a rule and norm. You can show rule us. And norm the King James Bible. If, if so, then you're just begging the question. But if the rule and norm is the uh, underlying Greek or Hebrew, then you've uh, basically conceded the debate because you're appealing to something other than the King James Bible. But you don't have a complete greek new testament that you can show us Do we have the uh original hebrew uh of daniel 9 26 probably of this verse we do okay so then i appeal i'm not to saying that. the whole hebrew bible because hebrew your, your modern version is rejected in many places okay but i i would appeal to the hebrew then to determine which on um, this specific um, verse right one verse well that that's fine but th this is exactly my point that I'm appealing to the rule and norm, which is not the King James Bible, which is which is the question itself is, is the King James Bible the correct one or is the English Standard Version the correct one? And we can't decide that by looking at the King James Bible. We have to decide that by looking at the, the underlying text. See, I can see what your ESV does is it frequently- It's not my ESV. I okay, well, the ESV that your church uses, all right? It frequently rejects the Hebrew readings, and it adds hundreds of words to the Hebrew readings. I can prove all of this, right? Okay. So the Hebrew Old Testament is not their standard. In fact, it's not your standard, because there are variants within the Hebrew text tradition. There are variants. I mean, the Greek, your, your case is much, much worse, because you have... There are variants within the King James Bible tradition. Oh, come on. We're going to get into that. Printing errors that were corrected, you know, like within the first 30 years. Let's get back to the doctrine here. Okay. I got a whole bunch of them in foreign languages. I got a whole list. Probably won't do you much good, but I could read off a whole bunch of them that reads exactly like the King James Bible. I, I'm not sure how much good it's going to do because you're avoiding the question, which is what resolves the disagreements when two translations disagree? Is it the King James Bible that resolves it? Or is the, the rule and norm something other than the King James Bible that resolves it? Can you tell it? us what that rule and norm is? We're going over the same thing again. You keep repeating the same words as though you have this rule and norm and you don't. And you can't show anybody. Sources. And Are when you, original language sources disagree, you can't show us. Okay. them to other original language sources. <laughs> and then we end up with a Bible babble buffet versions that we have today. Because somebody follows this reading, another one follows that reading, and they all disagree with each other. 
Um, you, is it still your position that the King James Bible has never been truly revised? That is, for the sake of simplicity, there have been no substantive revisions or changes to the text of the King James Bible? That is true. All there have been is there was a, a change from Gothic right. to Roman print. There were some minor printing errors, and a lot of them were corrected. Are you, are you familiar with David Norton's work? Yes, I am. Okay, and are you familiar with the instances in which he shows that um, later editors disagreed with the King James translators by uh, restoring, for example, um, uh, verses that were not included in the original 1611 editions? Okay, give me verses. Okay, can you give me one? Let's not go down a huge rabbit trail here. Give me uh, one verse. Yeah, that yeah, we're sure. It's, it's actually, you know, the thing about, the, uh, about King James onlyism is that you don't actually get around these problems other than by begging the question. And so, you know, well, let me give me, give me an example. example. Give me an example that Norton came up with let about. Let me answer verse. this question real quick. Um, do we have the original uh, master copy of the no. King James Translation? It was burned up in the fire. <laughs> okay. So when, uh, so, okay, let's take this hypothetical. When two King James Bibles disagree with one another, how do we resolve the issue? Can you give me an example? <clears throat> uh, so let me pull up one here. Uh, there, there are two uh, main examples, actually, that um, David Norton gives, if I can. Yeah, but it's not a whole verse. The first is... Uh, no, that's the second one he gives. The first is Hosea 6.5. And actually, neither of these two examples I, I saw, I did not see either of these on your website. Uh, and I'm, I'm, so, I'm surprised, um, being that David Norton, as far as I can tell, is the foremost scholar on the King James Bible and the, the textual history of the Bible. Is he believe the King James Bible is the inerrant word of God? I Does who? Norton. Oh, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> So you, you got an example you want to show me? Hosea 6.5. What does your Bible say? I know you, you said you prefer the, the uh, Cambridge, correct? Right, Cambridge. There have, therefore have I hewed them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And thy judgments are as the light that goeth forth. Okay, so um, I also have a Cambridge Bible, the new Cambridge edited by David Norton. And what he points out, come out, what's that? When did it come out? Uh, 2005, I believe, and then was revised in 2011. So okay. the King James Bible is still continuously being revised. But what's important about this particular uh, verse that he points out is that Hude um, is actually not the uh, translator's original choice there for that text. And so what David Norton did in this verse is he restored it to showed, which was in the um, um, 1611 version. This was not actually a printer error, but what he proves from the 1602 Bishop's Bible that was the basis for the King James translators is that, um, that what was in the 1611 edition was um, showed. Uh, but later editors have changed it. They've restored the text from the Bishop's Bible, the 1602, and, and changed it to Hugh, which is actually, uh, from what I understand, more faithful to the, the Hebrew text. Yeah, I think that was just a printing error is all it was. And they're, they're spelled similar, very but, similar. 
But what, what David Norton points out is that it was not a printing error. It was the textual choice of the King James translators. That's his opinion, but it's not following the Hebrew text that underlies no, it. it because they actually make a notation in the margin on the, in the Bishop's Bible where they, uh, where they cross out hued and they write showed. But that might have been a suggestion. I don't know how the printing error happened, but it's a printing error. They're not he the same Hebrew words at all. No, no, but what 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 they, the King James translators did was they made a textual decision there, and that's what ended up in the 1611 edition. I believe it was just a printing error. But same what thing it demonstrates is it's not. Okay, well, <laughs> and actually, he's not again, a Bible believer, and he has no standard. We actually have the master copy of the King James Bible. What we have is, for example, the, the most important witness we have. He's is got a that, master copy of the King James Bible that burned up in the fire. How did he get that? Say it again. He has a master copy of the King James no, no, no. Bible. No, what we don't have is the okay. master. Well, it, well, let me let me rephrase because effectively, what is the master copy is the 1611 edition. But what we don't have is what the printer was working from. Uh, exactly. What we do have is the annotated 1602 Bishop's Bible, which demonstrates that the King James translators in this verse and uh, another verse that I can give you is they made a textual decision. That ended up in the 1611, but later editors have restored the more faithful to the Hebrew text word, which is hued. And this is why in David Norton's uh, edition here, the, the edition that he edited, he restores the King James translator's textual deci decision, which is showed. Okay, and he's wrong. The Hebrew based doesn't on, read that way. Based on what? So, okay, let, well, let, based hey. on the Hebrew that underlies the King James Bible itself. Okay, so then I can show you other versions back there, like Geneva and everything, that read like the King James. Here's my question. Translated. Here's my question to you then, because you just said based on the Hebrew. The um, Hebrew that underlies the King is, James Bible. Okay, okay that's fine. Um, now, should that be the authority, or should the King James translators who made the textual decision be the authority? You can't prove that they made that decision that it, and it wasn't a printing error. It's very easy to make a printing error like that. We know that there were printing errors in the King James Bible. We know that. But based, but based on the evidence that we have, the most plausible scenario is that what was in the 1611 edition was the textual decision of the King James translator. So my question to you is... Which then is the authority, the King James translators who made the textual decision, or is it the underlying Hebrew of the King James Bible? It's the Cambridge King James Bible that we have in print today. You want to get back well, to mine it? Differs uh, from, mine differs from yours. The Cambridge that I have. Well, I have the Cambridge. Okay. The new Cambridge. Well, I have the Cambridge. It's put out by the Queen's printer. Well, so is this, and it's more recent. Okay. You're getting off into the woods again. We're talking about doctrine here. No, this right? is the very you question at hand. This is the question at hand because look, look, here's the problem. And and here's why you, I, I think you won't answer the question is because if you say it's the Hebrew, you can see my position. The if Hebrew that underlies the King James Bible, the Hebrew that underlies the King James Bible does not say showed. It says hewed. Okay, cut, then right? why? Okay, but you say that the King James translators were inspired in such a way that they could not err, but they've clearly erred in this. Uh, the scenario. printer, the printer was not inspired not based, without not error. Based on the evidence. No, that is the evidence. We know there were printing errors in the King James Bible. 
and that they were corrected. The 1611 two, has showed. Two of the original translators corrected them. The, the 1611 has showed. The annotated Bishop's Bible has showed. And in fact, it, it doesn't just have showed. It has hewed, crossed out, and showed, written in. All right. James but other previous English Bibles will say showed, like or hewed, like the King James does. And the Hebrew says that. But, but a, James a printing error, okay? There was well, correction. So here's the other doctrine here. You're the one. Who I'm going to well. jump in real quick, guys, because, and I'm also monitoring the live chat. We've got 10 minutes left in terms of the discussion. So this specific point we've now discussed for a while. Yeah. And it's, it, yeah. it's an interesting point. It's engaging. And again, I want to be, um, you know, as, as uh, non-intrusive as possible in terms of this discussion. But the last 10 minutes, maybe let's do our best to focus on, um, you know, doctrine itself. That's what the audience is especially calling for. So let's say another 10 to 12 minutes of discussion. I'll let you kind of guide it from here. And then we've got a ton of fantastic audience questions as well, over 20 of them. So gentlemen, 10 to 12 more minutes on the discussion. And uh, maybe let's pick a, a new point and topic to, to discuss now. Go ahead, gentlemen. Uh, another doctrinal issue? It, it, if that's how you, you gentlemen would like to proceed, that sounds... That's what um, it sounds like the audience would, would like to hear for sure. Um, I got a good but again, one. I'll, I'll leave it up to you guys. Yeah, a, a doctrinal issue would be would be interesting. Okay. Um, who's in control of the world, God or the devil? In what sense? Yeah, in any sense. Who's in control? Of the world. Well, it depends on it depends on the sense in which you're speaking. Ultimately, God is in control of all things, but um, the world has been uh, handed over to the devil, if you will, in that man is subject to the devil's um, uh, reign, which is sin. Okay, that that itself. So it, it depends on the sense that you're you're talking about. Okay, um, trying to find. Let's go. First John five nineteen. So uh, you got your ESV there or whatever. Anyway, this is who rules the world? Who rules the world? God or Satan? Okay. The King James Bible says uh, in 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. Okay. The whole world lies in wickedness. That's true because we live in a fallen world. But it is not under the control of Satan at all. Um the NIV says, we know that we are the children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Okay. ESV, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Is there any Greek word there at all for power? Or are you doing, you don't have a Greek text or what? I have a Greek text. Okay, there isn't. All right. Not there. The whole world lies in wickedness. All right. That we can prove, and that God, that Satan is not the ruler of this world. Jesus Christ said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. All right. Uh, Daniel 4, we have a lot of verses. The Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. It says, uh, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? In Genesis, he's called the possessor of heaven and earth. 
in uh, Psalms again. He's the governor among the nations. The governor among the nations. Um, Second Chronicles 26. <clears throat> it talks about, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven, and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? Rulest not thou over all the kings of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? So there are verse upon verse upon verse where God is in control. Satan is not in control. It's not under his power. He does not control this world. And what they do, I think that modern versions have bought into the lie of Satan himself, is when he says that, uh, he says to say, uh, Jesus in the, in the temptation, he says, all this power will I give thee, you know, for it is delivered unto me. But a whole bunch of commentators who have some sense to realize the truth of this is that Satan is lying. He's a liar and the father of it. And a bunch of Bible commentators all over the place have mentioned that, that he is not the ruler of this world, that God clearly is. And okay. so these, well, these big Bibles say this. a total non-issue for me because the two can be reconciled. Really? Now, if you say the world is under the power of the evil one, well, what's the power of the evil one? Wickedness. And so the two are easily reconciled. It's not an issue for me. The Who's the evil one being referenced? The New, James, the New King James said it's under the sway of the wicked one. And and do you do you reject that uh, that Satan tempts people and and and, and sways them to sin uh, against God? Do you reject that? Okay, just okay. What I do reject, I think that the New King James is sort of a, a soft compromise. What the ESV and the and NIV say is he's under the control or the power of the evil one. Who's the evil one? Satan, right? The evil one. Who is that? As you just said, Satan. Satan. Okay. So the world, the world is not under the power of Satan. It's it, not well, under it his control. What you mean by what is what is the power of Satan? The power of Satan is only what God permits him to do because Jesus said all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth all power okay and now did God permit Satan to tempt Adam in the garden by which mankind fell into sin and now has the stain of original sin which is what I would say is the power of Satan that's not called the power of Satan. God permitted it. God allowed it to happen. The one well, who's the problem is that you're approaching the text in such a way that you're just um, you're, you're you're instead of instead of interpreting it charitably, charitably, I suppose you could say you're mm -hmm. you're trying to force upon it a particular meaning. Whereas I could simply say the power of the evil one is wickedness, and therefore the English Standard Version agrees with the King James Bible. It's not under the, the whole world is under the power of the evil one. Okay, there's no word for power in the Greek there at all. Okay, but does it, if I, so is, is it illegitimate to say under the power of the evil one or the, the power of the evil one is wickedness? Is that illegitimate? Do you find that in the Bible? Actually, I mean, about real Bible, not just in well, on the Well, answer my question. Is it illegitimate to interpret that passage to say, well, the power of the evil one is wickedness. And in that sense, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It lies. No, it, doesn't. it doesn't lie under the power of the evil one because it God is still in control. All power, all power is given unto me in but, heaven and earth. God is, is in power? control. What is the power? 
the power, God's power, he sets up over the kingdom. No, no, no. See, <laughs> see that now you're inserting in here. You're saying, well, yeah. the, the, the power here uh, can only refer to power that God has. But what I'm saying is, no, it's referring to the power that Satan has, which is wickedness. And the two are then reconciled. There's no issue. It's a non-issue for me. Is there another one you want to bring up? <laughs> a non-issue for you. Well, that might well be uh, a non-issue for you. It certainly isn't for me. <laughs> Um, let's see. You want to get a uh, New Testament? Uh... See, I'm kind of forced right now into uh, defending. Like, I mean, the the original topic is, you know, what is the uh, I think it's source and norm for theology. And yeah, and again, I specifically agreed to that um, debate proposition because. It's a different question from, uh, for example, your last debate with Church and Pan, which is, is the King James Bible inerrant? Uh, it's, it's a totally different question. Okay, but we've been over this again and again. You keep talking about You don't have it. You can't point. show it to us. You're talking about something that does not exist. You can't point to it. You can't give us a copy of it. You don't have the standard you keep referring to that you think you have. But we do have the standard that I've been referring to, which are the original language copies. Anyway, if you want uh, to standard again, back to the same thing. To, if you want to bring up another example, we can look at another example. It's fine. <laughs> it's up to you, gentlemen, if, if you both feel like you... Let's get into um, some questions that they have, okay? If the audience has, if you'd like. That'd be fine. Yeah, if, if we, um, you know, because the question for tonight... Is the King James Bible the only infallible or inerrant source and norm for theology? So if we've uh, kind of exhausted that topic and and, and and we've been as comprehensive as, as can be, yeah, let's let's move into the next portion. Uh, very good discussion. I'm loving these Bible translation debates. Uh, we've got several uh, in the works for the next couple months. And so I do want to remind the audience, those that are uh, interested in, in stepping into the debate octagon, uh, especially on, on topics similar to this, please uh, please shoot me an email and I'll do my best to uh, you know set up debaters on, on these important topics. So gentlemen though, before we get into uh, these important questions, I, I, I don't wanna forget uh, about our concluding statement. So let's give you uh, both five minutes to kind of wrap up your thoughts, wrap up your points in, in terms of concluding words. Then we'll get into some audience questions. Mark, um, actually Will, you started. So let's give you the first five minutes, up to five minutes, and then Mark okay. as well. So Will, go ahead whenever you're ready. Yeah, no, I don't even need five minutes. Um, I believe in the sovereignty of God in history. I believe he kept his promises to preserve his words. Uh, Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And I believe that uh, God has given us this book, uh, this amazing book, in the King James Bible. And um, uh, there is no other book that anybody out there in the Internet world, Facebook, or any place else, defends as being the inerrant words of God. And again, like I said, if you ask people like Mark or others or James White or John MacArthur or anybody else, where can I get a copy of the inerrant words of God? And they almost inevitably, like, like Mark's church does in their statement, refer to the originals. And the problem is there are no originals. They've never seen them. They've never read them. They can't show them to anybody. And most people couldn't read them if they had them. 
And so you either believe that God has worked in history and given us an inerrant and complete Words of God Bible, and there's so much evidence that points to the King James Bible as being that book, and or we go the other route and we just have complete confusion, as the Bible tells us is going to result in the last days. There's going to be false doctrines and a falling away from the faith. The Lord said, well, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? What you find out there, these are books written by guys that are not even King James only, who talk about that there are many churches closing all over the United States every every month, churches close. Lots of young people are leaving the church, leaving the faith. The number one reason they give is that they no longer believe that the Bible is true. And it came out in this survey that if you were attended Sunday school and you were exposed to multiple versions, you were more likely to leave the faith than those who just went to church and didn't go to Sunday school. And this is by a, a guy that, uh, not Ken Ham, well-known creation, all that stuff. He's not a King James only at all. And, um, you know, there's going to come in a falling away from the faith, and I believe that we're in that now. We have had no revivals uh, in the United States. And um, every revival we've had was with the King James Bible. Uh, I'm not saying that the only King James Bible believers are, are saved or Christians. There are Christians all over the world that speak different languages, never even heard of the King James Bible. The gospel is found in every every Bible out there, no matter how corrupt it might be. And God only holds us accountable for the light that he's been pleased to give us. So I believe that we in this nation and England and other places, there are King James Bibles all over the place in the Philippines and some in Singapore and other nations of the world, um, Australia, of course. Uh, we've been given this light of the true and inerrant and complete words of God, and we'll be held accountable for it, what we've done with it. And uh, we've been amazingly blessed, you know, to have this book and God ha God's hand upon our countries, which are now, I believe, under judgment. And I don't think it's going to get any better. It's only going to get worse. And so our only refuge and hope is, is our God who created us, who gave us this amazing book that we can believe and take comfort in and feed on and believe. So I highly rec recommend, obviously, the King James Bible as being God's inerrant and complete word. And if you don't have that, well, then you don't have an inerrant Bible. It's that simple. So thank you. Thank you, Will. I appreciate uh, that concluding statement. Again, Mark and Will, very engaging uh, debate. I really appreciate both of your time for tonight. So Mark, we're gonna give you now five minutes. And whenever you're ready, the floor is yours. Go ahead, Mark. Sure, yeah. Well, first of all, thank you again, Donnie. And uh, thank you again, Will. I did really appreciate the discussion. and. You know, it got heated, but um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, uh, and was, I think it was a great discussion. Um, you know, I did have a, a concluding statement prepared here, but um, I think I'm just going to spitball it uh, instead, because what you, what you saw tonight in this debate was trying to uh, was an attempt to uh, reframe the issue um, in a I uh, suppose you could say a, a favorable light to uh, Will's position. Um, I'm not charging Donnie with that by any means, um, but that's just kind of the the, the uh, direction the discussion went, uh, which was something I was trying to avoid. Now, if Will uh, wanted to uh, debate, you know, can the substitutionary atonement be proven from the ESV, uh, I'd be glad to do that, and I'd be glad to demonstrate that, um, but that was not the proposition uh, for the de debate tonight. Um, but what Will continuously mentioned was 
this inerrant Bible uh, that he has. But I'll, I'll just point out again that his his King James differs from my King James. Uh, and these are both printed within the last, uh, I, I, they're printed by the same printer. In fact, uh, apparently his King James Bible is now out of date because this is the, the new Cambridge Bible. Um, so is he going to now uh, reject the Cambridge uh, as he did the Oxford? Um, I don't know. I guess we'll have to see what he comes up with to uh, try to remedy this uh, uh, position that he's in. Um, but, you know, I, I think I've sufficiently demonstrated that one, Will could not prove that the King James uh, translators were inspired the way that he, he claims that they were. And in fact, he holds many inconsistent positions by uh, appealing to the Greek or the Hebrew whenever it um, you know, serves his own purposes, but will not uh, allow me to uh, appeal to those um, in my own arguments. And um, you know, so he claims the King James translators were uh, inspired, and yet he accepts readings that the King James translators uh, rejected uh, based upon the evidence that we actually have. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that sufficiently demonstrates my contention that um, the King James Bible then is not the sole rule and norm or standard for theology. It's something else. And that something else is what we must uh, appeal to, um, even if we want to reconcile differences between uh, two different King James versions. Um, and this, again, has been the... Uh, uh, the the position of all God's people for all time, that you know all, all God's people have always understood that they had an infallible text um, by which to settle uh, controversies concerning doctrine um, and and even practice. And you know what was that infallible text, the King James Bible, uh, for all uh, two thousand years of history? Well, no, it was not. And therefore, what we must admit is that the sole rule and norm for theology is not the King James Bible, but rather the original language copies of the originally inspired texts um, uh, that, that were handed down to us, um, or, or the, 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 the copies handed down to us um, of the original language texts that were originally given by uh, the apostles and prophets and faithful witnesses whose office uh, God confirmed with great miracles. Um, and should we find any discrepancies between original language copies, we have recourse to other original language copies, not the King James Bible. Um, so I will end there and uh, thank you again, uh, Donnie and Will uh, for uh, uh, this debate, for putting it together. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that uh, concluding statement again, uh, Will and Mark. Uh, great debate, and I really enjoyed it, and so did the audience, which is why we've got a ton of questions. And I will say, looking at these uh, <laughs> slew of questions, that'll keep us busy till probably tomorrow the same time. So hope you guys got a good sleep last night since we're pulling an all-nighter. <laughs> Just kidding. I'll put a, a timer so we don't uh, you know, pull an all-nighter. But it is just an assortment of questions on the uh, King James issue in general. Uh, now, typically what we do, 
uh, on this channel in terms of the audience Q&A as the debate typically continues into the audience Q&A is whoever the question's for, we'll, we'll allow them to respond. Say the question's for Will, Will responds. Will might bring up a couple points that let's say Mark wants to respond to. So we'll allow Mark to have a response, but whoever the question is for gets the last word. Then we would give it to Will and he would get the last word. So that way we can move along smoothly. Now, real quick, I'll give you guys a, a well-deserved 30-second break because I want to remind the audience that we've been doing uh, debate marathons all summer long. Last week, we had a debate marathon, five debates last week. This week, we have four. So um, we started the week with one of our Evolution Debate Challenge debates. So we had... Um, Kent and Horazio. This one was uh, an epic debate. If you have not yet seen it, please check it out. Can evolutionary mechanisms explain the diversity of life? Of course, tonight we've got Is the King James Bible the Only Infallible Source and Norm for Theology? We will be back here tomorrow for a debate on the nature of God now. So a good mix of debates, evolution, Bible translation, soteriology, nature of God. So tomorrow we've got Matt Slick and Stanley Terry. They'll be debating, was Jesus fully God and fully man during his earthly ministry? And then we will end it all with uh, this Saturday, the great James 2 debate, uh, Charles Jennings and David Preston. So a lot of people are excited for this one. And so make sure you are here this Saturday. Okay, gentlemen, break time is over. And we are going to just get right into the uh, first question that came in tonight. Um, all right, here we go. So question from the freed thinker. Thank you so much for your question. And he asks, uh, why does the, so I'm guessing this is for you, Will, why does the KJV not even translate from the TR in first Corinthians eight thirteen? the Greek is, and I'm not even going to try and say that one, but KJV reads while the word standeth, uh, go ahead, Will. I have uh, several articles on this. If you go to my website, because it's to explain, I'll explain briefly, is that uh, the word Iona is frequently translated. In fact, in all versions, the NAS, ESV, NIV, they also translate it as world in other places. Uh, it has two meanings. It can be age or it can be world. It means both. And there are many Bible translations that uh, read exactly like the King James Bible. So if you look up that little word, tonayona, and you're going to find out that it has both meanings. And like I said, all versions do that. And I've got one uh, frequently comes up is Matthew 24, where it says, uh, what are the signs of thy coming and of the end of the world? And some of the modern versions say the end of the age. But I have an article. If you go to my site and, and just type in like Matthew 24, uh, end of the world, and then brand plucked. That should bring you up to my site and that, that article, but I show that it has both meanings and uh, many Bibles agree with the King James. So there's no error there. Okay, Will, thank you so much for that response. Mark, anything you'd like to add? Uh, no, not really. Um, I, I guess I should have pulled up the verse a little earlier, but um, while the world standeth, I, I have no comment there. Um, has no real bearing on my argument. So no worries, no worries. And, and I should say, yeah, disclaimer for any question, never feel obligated to have to respond. Just know that the opportunity is, is there gentlemen. So, okay. Moving on to the next question. This one comes in from Mark Siegel. 
This one again for you, Will. So Mark Siegel asks, question for Will. At least 75% of the KJV Bible came from William Tyndale, who was executed by the church for translating the Bible into English. Do you call that divinely inspired? I don't even understand the question. I know that uh, the, the Tyndale was used of God mightily. I don't believe his New Testament was inerrant, um, but uh, God used a lot of his work in the King James Bible. They compared all the older versions. They compared many foreign language versions as well. But I don't even understand the question. You call that divinely inspired. I don't get it. I don't know what his point is. I'm not really sure either. So, Mark, if you wanted to elaborate, um, or, well, there's two Marks here, the questioner and Mark, the one in the debate. So I can either move on to the next question or no, I just work here. So. I'd be glad to add some comments. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't really make that argument. Uh, for example, Jesus himself was murdered, um, and he was more than divinely inspired. He was uh, he was the God-man. Uh, so that's not an argument I would make. The, 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 the challenge, though... Um, or the problem is that Will never actually told us what the inspiration process looks like. So, for example, were all of the people who contributed, whether directly or indirectly, to the King James Bible, such as William Tyndale or, um, you know, Coverdale or um, whomever, were, were they all inspired or were only the King James translators inspired? And if the King James... You keep bringing this up. I never said the King James translators were inspired. I never said that. You keep saying I do. Uh, the words of God are inspired. And God, I believe, guided uh, Tyndale to the right words to a certain extent. And, you know, he doesn't guide us all the same. He doesn't show us all the same amount of truth. We all still see through a glass darkly. But what he had that was the true words of God in his translation, yes, that was inspired. Okay. Um, well... I, I think I was in the middle of answering the question, but that's well, you fine. Um, you something that I never said. Okay, and, and so then the whole my whole contention all, all evening has been that in order for Will to demonstrate that the King James Bible is the sole infallible rule and norm for theology and is inerrant and possesses all the divine attributes that, uh, that uh, the original uh, autographs did, he has to... Dem he has to uh, have recourse to the doctrine of inspiration. It's impossible. They're inseparable. So I'll leave it at that. Well, you can have the last word if you'd like, since it's your question, anything you wanted to add? No, I mean, I've already gone over this. He just doesn't get it. And this is all scripture is given by inspiration of God. If something is true scripture, then it is by definition inspired of God. Okay. Appreciate uh, it. I have a standard I can show anybody. He does not. <clears throat> All right, gentlemen, appreciate it. Next question comes in from Born Again RN, and this looks like it's a question for the both of you. So, um, and I guess since Will started with the last two, maybe we'll have Mark start with this one. Uh, so Born Again RN asks, could both address the standing scholarship? Is that Mark 16, <laughs> 9 to 20 is not part of the original Greek text, backed by the earliest copies of the New Testament? Sure. Yeah. Uh, now, I actually, uh, you know, I accept Mark, uh, the long ending of Mark is um, as uh, uh, legitimate. So I, I have no problem uh, with it. Uh, I would say that, uh, you know, there's a there's a fallacy there uh, to as assume that just because the earliest copies don't contain it, that therefore 
it does not belong in the text. Um, that simply doesn't follow. Uh, so I would point you to uh, someone like James Snap, uh, who gives a, a, a great defense uh, of this text. His um, uh, website is the text of the Gospels, and it's something that I accept. So this is not something that Will and I would uh, disagree on, perhaps for different reasons, but um, but suffice to say, we, we would not disagree on uh, on this particular text. And uh, it doesn't contradict anything else in Scripture. So, um, you know, I'm perfectly fine with it. It's not like it causes any issues. Appreciate well, it, Mark. Go ahead, Will. Yeah, it does cause issues. It's the issue is, are these words, these whole verses inspired scripture or not? And as you pointed out, I mean, the vast majority of all the manuscripts, uh, Bible translations from the very beginning in all languages contain these verses. There are many, many uh, early church fathers that existed before Vaticanus and Synaticus were even penned who testified, who witnessed to these verses, who quote them directly. And there's even room in Vaticanus and Synaticus for those verses to be there, which is unusual in a, in a copy like that. So somebody took them out, and I think I know why. But anyway, they're absolutely scripture. I have no doubt about it. And if they're not, if these people uh, who put out these critical text versions don't believe it's real scripture, then why don't they just take it out of the Bible? The RSV did. Why aren't they consistent? Just take it out. Take out the whole woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. If you don't believe it's scripture, take it out. Okay, don't keep putting it in there. Or they go through these, like the NAS, uh, NIV, ESV. You go reading it along in Matthew 1920, and then it goes 1922, something like that. Or 1810, it goes to 1812. They're giving silent witness to the fact that there's a standard there that they don't measure up to. And, uh, you know, if you don't believe their scripture, then take them completely out and renumber your Bibles, you know. All right, gentlemen. Thank you for the uh, for the answers. Was a question for the both. Of you? Oh, oh, sorry. Oh, okay. Never mind. <laughs> no worries. No worries. But the next question is for you, Mark. So we won't let uh, Will have all the fun. Uh, <laughs> this one, <laughs> this one comes in from Image Bearer, and question for Mark: Is your position that God inspired the original writings, but then took His hands off the wheel when it came to transmission? <laughs> Um, no. Uh, however, what I would say is that um, the uh, process, if you will, of transmission uh, it does not take place in the same way that the inspiration of the original authors of Holy Writ uh, took place. So there's a difference there. Um, there is certainly God's providence, his providential care. Um, and I agree with Will that the words uh, of our Lord have not passed away, um, but they do exist to this time. Now, where do we find those words? Um, that that's where, I mean, in, in some respects, um, uh, Will and I would disagree, but, um, no, I don't, I do not believe that he took his hands entirely off the wheel or off the wheel. However, the process again is not the same as the, uh, as the inspiration, uh, of, of the original authors. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Will, anything you'd like to add? I would actually agree with a lot that uh, Mark said. Um, problem is, you know, God did not take his hands off the wheel. I mean, he continues, it's called preservation. He preserved his words. Only God knew where they were. He knew what, what he said and what he didn't say. <clears throat> and there was a purification process. Uh, Paul said many corrupt the word of God, and that was back in his day. 
you know, there were false gospels that came out and false readings, and some people that didn't like Luke, whole sections and just took it out. Anyway, there was a purification process, and I believe the end result of this is the King James Bible. Uh, the problem with Mark's uh, position is that uh, God was working on it, but he's still working on it, and we don't really know what it is now. And all we have is a bunch of variant readings in the different uh, copies of Scripture, thousands of them. And today's Bible scholars can't even agree among themselves as to which reading is right. Thank you, Will. Mark, question was for you. Get the last word. Yeah. Um, so just to add, you know, the, the, the very fact that variants exist um, demonstrates that the uh, um, copies or the, the transmitted text is not inspired in the same way that the originals were. The pro uh, Will actually has this problem where he thinks that the word of God is corrupt. And this was actually the papal position back at the time of the Reformation, that the word of God has been had been corrupted. That is, the original language uh, uh, copies were corrupted. And that's why they elevated the Latin Vulgate to um, to to what they did. And Will commits the same error when he um, he insists that the word of God uh, had been corrupted and uh, finally restored or purified uh, at the uh, production of the King James Bible. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much. And let's move on to the next question. This one comes in for Will this time from Slam RN. Appreciate the super chat support and the question. So Slam RN asks, uh, Will, did the translators of the KJV ever say it was specially inspired over other English translations? They wrote a long preface is it in there? Uh, they never mentioned that their translation was inspired. Uh, they did state very clearly, though, that uh, they didn't want to make, a, they, they compared many Bible versions, and they didn't want to make of many good ones. They made a, wanted to make of many good ones one uh, chief one, one principal one, not to be uh, accepted against. And so they, they, they recognized the good that was in previous English Bibles. And, um, you know, I believe that, that again, that, that purification process. And, uh, but they never came out and said the King James Bible is the inspired and errant words of God. They didn't say that. But they said that uh, they, they wanted to produce one principle, one chief one that was out of many good ones. That was their goal, and I believe that's what they did. All right, Will, thank you so much. Mark, if there's anything you'd like to add, the floor is yours. Yeah, um, there is actually a, a point that I did not get to bring up during the debate, but um, Will actually holds the position, and I was looking for it. I thought I had saved it, um, and you know, I, I would obviously prefer to uh, quote your own words, but in any case, I do not think I'm misrepresenting you. Uh, but Will actually holds the position that the King James trans he that the King James train now he does hold that they are inspired. Uh, and I could pull that off of his website. I don't know why he's denying it. Um, in debate, uh, let me finish. Will. I, I don't know why he's denying it in tonight's debate. Uh, I could easily pull it off of his website, but he actually also at the same time admits that, uh, the King James translators did not know that they, what they were doing was, uh, uh, revising or translating inspired scripture. So, uh, and this is another, uh, difference that sets the King James translators apart from the original authors who did have the command of God to write um, and who knew that they, for example, Paul um, knew that he was an ambassador of God, that what he was doing 
was uh, committing to writing uh, the testimony of Christ uh, for all posterity. The, the, now, not all of them um, ha give such an explicit uh, indication of that, but we know uh, in, in at least uh, some cases like that, that, um, that the origi originally, originally inspired authors did have this understanding that they were um, doing something special. All right. Thank you, uh, Mark. And Will, question was for you. So we'll give you the, the, the final word on this one. Go ahead. Well, you know, like I said, they didn't come out in those words and say that what they wrote were inspired. Had they done that, they probably would have been accused of a whole lot of things on the other side. God uses a lot of people in Scripture without them even knowing it. Uh, we got people, uh, this wicked king is giving a pronouncement about how that Christ would die for not for that nation only, but also for you know, the other people. We've got uh, God. There are several examples. I have it on a website and it slips on mine right now. But where they don't know that they're being used uh, to to do you know, God's work. A lot of times we don't know that God's using us when he is. And uh, I just believe, you know, that we do have an inerrant Bible and he just happened to use the King James uh, translators. They didn't always agree among themselves as to what, you know, should be in the text. And that's why we have some of the marginal notes. But it's what God overruled and put in the text. And I defend the, the text of the King James Bible as being the inerrant words of God. And like I said, again and again, it's something that we can hold in your hands and read and believe every word. Whereas Mark's position is we don't have such a thing that we can hold in our hands and read and believe every word. He doesn't have it. It doesn't exist. Uh, he can't show it to you. All right, gentlemen, thank you for your responses on that uh, fantastic question. So here we go. This one comes in for, uh, from Reformed. This one is another question uh, for you, Will. And Reformed asks, why would God uh, go through the effort of inspiring an English uh, English translators, but then allow the printers to make an error? Um, you know, I don't know why that would happen. Uh, he didn't inspire the printers, apparently. If... Uh... Uh, I would love, here we go. We know that there are print, like in first Corinthians five, I think the, the first printing, it goes like uh, chapter five, then verse one, two, three, four, five, five, something like that, where you got two different, this two same numbers. Obviously it was a printing error. There've been printing errors all through history in, in the Bible. Some of them are quite humorous. I'm trying to bring them up here, but I'm having trouble with my computer. But uh, maybe he allowed, oh, shoot, what the heck is that? Did I lose you guys or you lost me? I still hear you. Yeah, okay. yeah, we're still here, Will. Okay, I can't see you, so I'll just wing it from here. But um, anyway, I, I don't know. Maybe he brought it up so that uh, guys can raise objections and say, wait a minute, what about the printing? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I wasn't there. It's, but it's the text I defend. It was purified, like I said, uh, to the original translator's uh, corrected those printing errors in the first 30 years. And as it stands today, I believe it's the inerrant word of God. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Will. Mark, if there's anything you'd like to add, floor is yours. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I'm glad that Will answered that question just now, that he does not think that the printer uh, was inspired because that was one of the very questions that I'd asked. You know, I wanted to know who in the process was inspired, where, you know, what, what bounds and limits does he set to this um, inspiration process. And so I'm glad that he answered that. However, 
um, he talked about the um, uh, purifying process and, you know, he keeps insisting he thinks the purifying process has been completed and we have the uh, complete, absolute, 100% inerrant um, uh, scriptures. And yet my more recent Cambridge Bible, which um, Will uh, uh, approves over the Oxford, uh, differs from his. So apparently it's still undergoing uh, the purification process. And I don't, I do not know how he's, uh, um, can get around that. All right. Thank you, Mark. Will, you get the last word. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, there you go. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know what this other new Cambridge says. So, I mean, I can't really, you know, speak to it because I can't see it. I don't know. I don't know myself. I don't know. Uh, get one. Maybe I'll send you well, one. Well, to compare, that would be nice. But to compare it uh, to the one that I have, uh, I know that, um, I don't believe that the text is changing at all. They might change something like, I don't, can you imagine what they would? Maybe some capital S for a small S or something like that. I don't know what else it would be. But uh, no, the text is, is settled in the King James Bible. They're not these major revisions. Like uh, the ESV has gone through four different revisions just in 16 years. The New American Standard has gone through about 10 different editions. They keep changing the text. Uh, this last one has omitted a whole lot of things that were in the previous ones. NIV, that's unbelievable how much it changes. Uh, it's got like three different editions so far, and they keep changing the text. Both are Greek and the Hebrew reading. So those are changes. Some minor thing like uh, hued, you know, uh, showed, uh, which actually doesn't read, you know, in the Hebrew, and it was later on corrected. That's so minor. But yeah, anyway. All I'd right, like thank you. Okay, gentlemen, thank you so much. Next question comes in. I've got it up on screen here in the form of a super chat. Thank you so much for the uh, support and the question. So this question comes in from Chris Lucas, live shows and Collins. So he asks, and uh, it looks like it's for you, Will. Um, how is the KJV inerrant when it mistranslated the Hebrew word for spit in brackets, he puts topet or tofet in Job 17.6 for tabret. In, in uh, brackets, he puts tambourine. Yeah, give me a minute. I'm not sure if I can bring this up here. Uh, let's see. Tambourine. In the King James Bible, it reads, uh, what, tambour? I believe so. Mistranslated the Hebrew word for spit, topet or tofet. That's not something I have in the margin of my Bible. You know, it's something that I've, I have written on. If, I, oh, wait a minute. Here it is. It should be in here. Okay. 17.6. Was that the one? I know this is one of the ones that Mark Ward apparently can't understand, and it makes perfect sense. You look at what it says, what the commentators say. So where can I bring it up? If you, oh, here we go. Okay, so scroll down to 17.6. So I've got a Two big articles on Job on my site. And I'm getting there. 15. 
1761, 1761, 1761, 1761, 1761, 1761, 1761, 1761, 1761, 1761, 1761, well, okay, not only does uh, the King James Bible read the way it does, uh, so does the Geneva Bible. Uh, Webster's translation, uh, the word of Yah, 1993. The um, KJV 21, 1994 says, Before time I was as a drum to beat on, same meaning. Third Millennium Bible, 1998. Bond Version, Jubilee Bible, 2010. I was as a tambourine. Uh, Interlinear, 2010, Andre de Mol, a tambourine, Hebraic transliteration scripture, 2010. I was formerly as a tablet, okay. Jewish Bible commentary by Rashi, okay. He says, a drum. I was like as a drum before them. And there are many foreign languages, Bibles also that agree with the King James. <coughs> um, I got a list of them here. Anyway, the, the sense of it is that uh, he, uh, before, he was like, you march to the beat of his drum. People imitated his example, and now they don't. And um, commentators have, have seen that. Um, some of them have just gone off, completely off the wall. Anyway, here's John, uh, John Gill's comment. <clears throat> he says, you can also read the, his additional comments to see how some people come up with at least four wildly different translations of the text. But he starts off saying, in a foretime, I was as a tabret, a delight to the people who, when he appeared in public streets, came out and went before him singing and dancing and beating on tabrets and such like musical instruments to express their joy upon the sight of him. But now it was otherwise with him and he whom they could not sufficiently extol and commend now knew not well what to say bad, bad of him. Uh, yeah, E.W. Uh, e. Bollinger, he, he says, Tabret, a drum, Hebrew, the sound and the warning of which pe people gave heed. So there are many translations that agree with the King James Bible. All this guy has is his own opinion. And uh, there will be many others that uh, differ. There are other translations that go totally off the wall, like Young's that says, and I'm a wonder before them all. Uh, no tablet, nothing about spitting. New English Bible says I'm important for all to see. <clears throat> Again, you're going to come up with different translations all over the board. But I believe the King James is right. Okay, thank you, Will. Mark, if there's anything you'd like to add, go ahead. <clears throat> I, I can't comment on it exactly. Um, it, it's it's a pretty uh, uh, stark difference as, as far as I can tell, but you know I haven't I haven't looked at it um, or looked into it really. Um, but uh, what what I would suggest is um, is to to if possible you know look to see if the two things can be reconciled. Uh, perhaps it's some kind of idiomatic phrase there that King James uh, decided to uh, translate uh, more literally, while whereas. Um, other versions translate it more idiomatically. Uh, so I don't know, but, um, you know, rather than, uh, than all uh, jumping to pitting things against one another, you know, uh, see, see where they can be reconciled if possible. 
All right. Thank you, Mark. Anything you wanted to uh, add in terms of a final word, uh, Will? Oh, there are just so many things in, that you cannot reconcile uh, in the Bible. Totally opposite meanings that you'll find in one from another. Totally opposite or different numbers, you know, that you'll find in one from another. Um, and even the New American Standard sometimes will change from one edition to the next. You know, in Luke 1, Luke 17, uh, 1 and 10, I believe it says that the Lord sent out 70 uh NASB went with 70 for a long time, and then they changed it in the last edition now to 72. You know, 70 and 72 are not the same numbers. Um, you've got the same thing in examples in ESV, where they'll change one guy's age uh, from six, and then the next version will come out as being uh, 16. And these are textual changes. Those are not um, synonyms. Six is not a synonym for 16. Um, yeah, anyway, there are things that you cannot reconcile in these new versions, and that's why they lead to confusion, uncertainty, and doubt. All right, guys, thanks again. And uh, again, to the audience, thank you so much for so many great questions, and I appreciate you all being uh, so engaged in this important topic. So this one comes in from Mistletoad, and this one is for you, Mark. So Mistletoad asks, which books slash chapters slash, slash verses are we sure about that cannot be up for revision or change or deletion due to future manuscript discoveries or scholarship? So I guess um, Mistletoe is asking specifically <laughs> about uh, a revision uh, or a potential revision uh, because the textual basis or there, there's some other kind of uh, um, uh, a textual basis that was discovered um, that um, you know, differs from uh, what we have today, I guess. Um, uh, as opposed to, for example, you know, a revision because of an updating of language. So um, it, it depends on the uh, the, the arguments um, that that are made for uh, that particular text, and you know, which one is to be uh, regarded as uh, more faithful. Uh, it depends on the arguments, you know. I you can't, I can't really um, comment on that. But uh, so that, that's all, all I can say about that, really. All right, appreciate it. Uh, Will, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, that's um, a good position. It sounds like it's coming from uh, an atheist or a Bible mocker. Maybe the guy is sincere. I don't know. His name kind of indicates that maybe he's not. But. Um, the problem with Mark's view is that he has no revision, or he has no standard, so he doesn't know what's going to be revised, what new manuscripts or new findings are going to come up, and his own versions are continually changing from one edition to the next. So he has no standard text. He has nothing in the Greek and the Hebrew as a complete New Testament that he can show to anybody that he also that he really believes is the standard. My position, on the other hand, though you may disagree with it, is that God has worked in history. He sees the end from the beginning. He knows there's going to come a falling away. Uh, he's done great revivals under the King James Bible, like with no other. And it's the only one believed by thousands of Christians, even today, that, that believe it's the inerrant words of God. Nobody believes the ESV is inerrant uh, or infallible. So, yeah, his uh, versions can change at any time. So, that, yeah, it's a good question. That's where he, That's the position he's uh, in right now. Okay, thank you, Will. Mark, question was for you. Get the last word. 
Yeah, I'll just point out that Will, you know, he continuously talks about, um, you know, no one, no one believes the ESV is inerrant. Well, uh, obviously, people do believe the King James is inerrant. They just can't uh, account for it. They can't um, actually demonstrate it, as uh, I think we saw um, in tonight's debate. All right, awesome. Thank you. Uh, next question comes in from the Freed Thinker. Thank you for your question, and he asks for Will. Where was the perfectly preserved word for the English-speaking church for the hundreds of years English was spoken before 1611? Easy question to answer. Um, I get it all the time. You don't believe there was a uh, complete and inerrant Bible before the King James either. You don't. Can you show it to us? Uh, was it Wycliffe? Was it uh, Tyndale? Was it uh, Coverdale? The Great Bible, Bishop's Bible, Matthew's Bible. Nobody, you know, that I run into like that really believes that any Bible before the King James Bible was inerrant. And they usually don't believe there is one now. So, yeah, uh, that's not a hard question at all to answer. All right. Thank you, Will. Much appreciated. Uh, Mark, if there's anything you'd like to add, go ahead. Um, <laughs> well, a little tongue in cheek. It just wasn't in English. It was in the um, uh, faithful manuscript tradition of the original language uh, copies. But, um, you know, Will, again, I, he, he uh, mentioned it earlier. He believes that. Uh, the word of God had is corrupt this whole time uh, up until 1611 and that it was finally purified in 1611. Uh, he takes uh, essentially the same kind of position that the, uh, the, the papists do. So, um, I mean, that, that, that's, that was his answer earlier. Um, and in fact, it's, uh, as I've demonstrated, the purification process is still ongoing. And, um, you know, my Bible, uh, different. in fact, I have two Cambridge Bibles here both printed within the last uh, 20 years, I believe, and they differ from one another and they both differ from wills. So the purification process has not been complete. Um, and uh, again, I, I see no way for will to actually get around that. Well, okay. Then from your point of view, the, you, you said, I, I believe that uh, previous English Bibles, the word of God was corrupt. Your point of view then is that all of them are, were corrupt, that all of your manuscripts are corrupt because you can't show us anyone. You got, thousands of different, or hundreds at least, of variant readings. You don't have anything that's pure word of God that you can show. So so don't come with this accusation that I believe the previous Bibles were corrupt or not pure. I don't believe they were inerrant. I believe that there were some faults and some uh, things left out. And uh, they weren't inerrant. But I mean, God, the gospel of God is in every any Bible, no matter how corrupt it is. Uh, people can still get saved reading them. Uh, there's a lot of truth in all Bibles, even though some of it's mixed up with some error. But, you know, God uses them. God brings his people to faith in Christ through reading the Somali Bible or whatever, or the the message even, you know. But it doesn't make it the pure and errant words of God. But, I mean, you make an accusation against me, and yet you, like a Democrat or something, are doing the same thing that you accuse me of, you know. It's like you don't have this pure and incorruptible words of God that you can show us. You don't. Do I get to respond to that or no? <laughs> um, if you want to respond, and then we'll just go back to Will yeah, and he gets sure. the, yeah, sure, yeah, just quick response. No, I would not say that um, the faithful um, manuscript copies were corrupt. Um, variations or variance uh, does not equal corrupt. They're two different things. You believe they were corrupt. I believe they're variants. But uh, <laughs> the word of God, uh, in, in essence, has been preserved 
um, throughout all time, as God promised. Appreciate it, Mark. Well, if there's any uh, final words on that question you want to make, go ahead. No, that's all right. <laughs> all right, gentlemen, thank you uh, for keeping this fun and sophisticated. So my kind of debate. Uh, the height next... of sophistication. <laughs> that's me. My wife's always telling me that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, here we go. Mark Siegel's got a question for Will. Very common question um, when it comes to this Bible translation controversy. So he asks, why are Mark 16, well, I guess we discussed that one earlier, Jesus and adulterous woman, John 7, 53 to 8 to 11, and the Trinitarian formula, 1 John 5, 7, how come those are in the KJV, but not in the Codex Vaticanus and uh, Sinaiticus, uh, Will? You know, the best I can do really is, rec I have articles on both of these uh, on my site, easy to find. Again, John uh, 753 to 11, that's found in the majority of all manuscripts. It's uh, all Bibles. And, and it's, it's primarily, as I recall, Synaticus and Vaticanus that often don't even agree with each other. Uh, one of them will have, they have several whole verses found in Synaticus that are not in Vaticanus and vice versa. So these are very corrupt manuscripts. And maybe it's not in there, and that's why. But you've got early church fathers that refer to these and even quote them, you know, parts of the verses uh, verbatim in their writings before Synaticus and Vaticanus even existed. With 1 John 5, 7, I also believe that is fully scripture. You've got uh, many, many people. I've got a great article on it, a lot of information. But uh, of the churches all through history that believed that was uh, scripture, uh, the Reformed churches did. They included it in their confessions. Um, Cipriano, uh, no, not Cipriano, they it. it was in that, that version too. Uh, Cyprian, yeah, way back, even before, it was around 220, something like that. He quotes the verse. He says, as it is written uh, of the Father, uh, the Holy Ghost, and, or the Son and the Holy Ghost, these three are one. And he, he refers to the verse, even some of your critical text versions, you know, the note, footnotes will give you reference that, yeah, these guys were quoting the verse, you know, way back there. So there was a huge council held in, in Africa around 400 AD, something like that. And it was between the Arians and the, those who believed in the deity of Christ, and the Trinitarians. And this was the first verse that they brought up without controversy. They didn't even object to it. They just didn't like the way it read or how it understood it. But, I mean, there's a lot of history behind uh, that, that verse. Jerome writes back in like 400 and something AD, he complains that the heretics are taking this out. He said, Arians are removing this verse from the scriptures. And he, he writes that way back around 400. You got to admit, it's, it's the strongest verse in the Bible on the Trinity. And uh, anyway, I would recommend that you go to my site and look up 1 John 5, 7. And uh, it's up in the upper part. And I got a lot of information about it. All right. Thank you, Will. I do have... Um both of your relevant links in the description box for people to check out well including your your website with your article so uh, mark if you uh, had anything to add go ahead yeah um i would actually disagree with will on that last comment that he made that it's the uh, strongest um verse in the bible for the uh the trinity uh, i would point to something like the baptism of christ but in any case that's not the question the question is you know why is it in the king james but not in vaticanus and sinaiticus and the, the simple answer would be, um, well, because uh, uh, the differing textual basis. Um, so uh, apparently, uh, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus were uh, not uh, 
uh, part of the textual basis, uh, or perhaps they were. I don't know. I don't know the entire history. But then the, the question uh, that would come after that is, well, why the dif why the difference between um, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus and the the texts uh, that uh, the King James translators uh, used? And the answer to that would be a different manuscript tradition. And and then the the question would be, well, which one is the right one? And uh, now to answer that question, are we going to presume that the King James translators um, uh, simply made the correct decision? They were uh, guided by God to do it? Um, or are we going to actually look at the evidence to determine uh, which is the, is the more faithful uh, manuscript or manuscript tradition? And, and um, can we try your method then? Uh, if right now, that point, if we get to that point, then you've already conceded that the King James Bible then is not the sole infallible rule and norm for theology because you're comparing two different you're comparing two different things and you're not using the King James as your standard. So that that's awesome. Okay, can we take your method then that you just talked about all the way this whole evening? You're looking at different manuscripts, all right. Mm -hmm. Now, in your determination, these different manuscripts that have different readings in them. Which one is the truth? Your standard, you know, does it lead you to to firmly say with conviction, yes, this belongs in the scriptures, or no, it does not? Use your method. What would you say? Well, my method would be to uh, to compare the manuscripts. Already told us that. Rather What's your than rather than to compare them to the King James Bible, since okay. it is not what conclusion do you come to using your method? Is oh, it I have no for sure or not? Yeah. I'm fine. Again, First John 5, 7 um, is not the strongest text for the Trinity. I'm um, not asking that. Is it inspired scripture or not? Um, so I uh, I have no conclusion on this. Um, and that's um, where you, that your, your whole method leads you. You have no conclusion. That's why you're a Bible agnostic. You don't know for sure. All right, guys, let's, let's move on. This has been a ton of fun. This has been... Um, probably one of the, the, the more comprehensive Q&As for sure. Um, this Bible translation debate has been a hot topic this summer. We've, we've now hosted a ton and we always got, I mean, we've had roughly 120 to 130 people watching live tonight. So, um, okay, let's move to the next question. This one comes in from, um, we're never going to be able to get to all these questions. So, you know, we'll, we'll start winding it down for a, with a couple more. And uh, to the audience, don't worry. We got many more of these planned. And so many more opportunities to send in your, your questions. So <clears throat> Anastasia asks, um, question for both. So we'll get you both involved here. Uh, although you both have been involved each question. So very good. And she asks, how did the Israelites preserve and transmit their scriptures? And how does that differ from our processes for the New Testament? Um, anybody want to volunteer in terms of answering first? I can give it a shot. Sure. Um, with what I know about it. Okay. Not that I'm an expert on this, but the, the Jews were very scrupulous about how they copied their scriptures from what I understand. And that, uh, of course, it was in one language and it was pretty well established what the text was. And they, they had all these, these copyists, people who scribes, of course, that copied the, the scriptures. And uh, apparently they were so scrupulous that they made a mistake, but then they had to start all over again and on that page or that part of the scroll. But uh, they compared it constantly. And so the Hebrew scriptures have been pretty well preserved. Most of the problems are not with the Hebrew scriptures. We get to the New Testament, 
and then this goes out to all the nations and some and you got copies being given not just a select group who was in charge of copying them but they were scattered all over to different churches all over different countries regions and so you got a lot of different people involved in this and not select on one select group that was trained to do so and so sometimes people didn't even know greek that well but they would copy out what they understood or they would make mistakes and things and so errors crept in and sometimes by by intent uh, they didn't like what it said and sometimes by mistake and then they would be multiplied and multiplied and so we actually have what we have in Greek is about 5,000 plus manuscripts that, that remain. And none of them agree all the way through with any other. So, you know, there are variant readings, very definitely. And either God is going to guide through that process and uh, guide a group of men or an individual, perhaps. But uh, to the right readings and the right translation, I believe he did that in the King James Bible. A lot of evidence for it. And... Um, that's where we stand today. Well, thank you so much for your response. Uh, since it's a question for the both of you, Mark, go ahead. Yeah, um, certainly no expert on it, but you know, I can just think of some things off the top of my head uh, that would differentiate, uh, if you will. Uh, for example, uh, again, just to, to give a, a word off the top of my head, I think of the transmission among the Israelites as far more confined. I mean, you're dealing with one nation here. And what Will pointed out is that uh, in the New Testament, the gospel goes out to all nations. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, um, in that sense, it, it does seem to be a, a, a far, um, a, a very different kind of process, if you will. Um, however, uh, there, there is actually a, a really fascinating discussion. And again, I'm no expert on it, but it took place uh, during the Reformation because if, if you recall, uh, as I've mentioned, uh, what the papists did was they insisted was that the, the Hebrew text was corrupt. And what the reformers did was um, to actually defend the transmission of the Hebrew text and um, the meticulousness uh, of the uh, the Masoretes in, um, in preserving the text. And it, to go, even going to such lengths as uh, counting if, if, uh, if per, at least the words, but uh, maybe even the syllables, I don't, I don't remember, but yeah, they went to extreme lengths um, to ensure that what they preserved, or that that, that they preserved um, uh, very well, the uh, Hebrew scriptures. All right, gentlemen, very good, very good. Uh, this one's a ten dollars super chat comes in from Alan, and he's not um, addressing it to anybody uh, specifically. So maybe it's just another question for the both of you or uh, whoever wants to get their input on this one. So. Um, Alan quotes, the righteous is more excellent than his neighbor, but the way of the wicked seduceth them. Uh, what gives, let me see here, what gives with the modern translations changing the whole meaning to this verse? Um, it's a super chat. We got to get it in there, gentlemen. And anybody want to add anything to that, respond to that? Yeah, I'd have to look up the verse and what I've got. I know I've got something on it. Um, yeah, yeah. Going well, uh, if I may, I just uh, going back to uh, what I've suggested uh, to um, to you know look at them charitably. I I don't see a vast difference between, for example, the King James Bible and the English Standard. The ESV has one who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Whereas the King James has the righteous is more excellent than his neighbor, but the way of the wicked seduceth them. And um, I, I see the um, uh, no uh, apparent 
difference or contra uh, contradiction between the two verses that to me they essentially say the same thing so i would say both uh, translations are faithful in that regard all right gentlemen thank you so much and why don't we um wrap it up with one oh go ahead Will. Can I address that the we have yeah yeah go ahead i mean they're totally different the Anyway, the righteous is more excellent than his neighbor, okay? But the way of the wicked seduces them. Uh, the New King James says the righteous should choose his friends carefully. Now, how in the world you can say, well, that pretty much says the same thing. I don't get it. New, and New American Standard says the righteous is a guide to his neighbor. That's not even similar to the New King James, let alone the, the King James Bible. Look at the, the NIV. It says, uh, this is the NIV 1984 edition. Okay, the righteous man is cautious in friendship. Has nothing to do with the previous New American Standard, the New King James, the King James Bible. Then in the, the, the NIV came out in 2011, a revision, and it says <clears throat> the righteous should choose their friends carefully. Um, Holman Standard said. A righteous man is careful in dealing with his neighbor. Okay. Uh, the voice says, those who live right are good guides to those who follow. These, these different versions don't say at all the same thing as the others. Trying to reconcile that, say, oh, it's pretty much the same thing except different words. Whoa, not at all. This is totally different. So, no, I... I <laughs> Young's literal, the righteous searcheth his companion. Okay. Uh, Knox Bible, 2012. It is well done to put up with loss for a neighbor's need. You go, what? So, RSV, a righteous man turns away from evil. These are all totally different meanings that these different Bibles have for that one verse. There's no way you can reconcile these and say it's saying the same thing. Do I get a follow-up comment on that? Yeah, go ahead, Mark. Go ahead. No worries. So the question is, well, what does it mean that the righteous is more excellent than his neighbor? And, uh, you know, what you see then is that some of these other translations that try to bring more clarity uh, to the uh -huh. text. Because, you know, it seems to me that Will wants to simply say the righteous is more excellent than his neighbor and leave it at that. And not ask, well, what does that actually mean? Well, apparently the ESV takes it to mean that the righteous is more excellent than his neighbor such that uh, he's a guide to him, um, but the wicked uh, leads them astray. So, um, you know, Will can point out these differences all day long um, while not actually getting to the heart of the issue. So, you know, he just wants to say the righteous is more excellent than his neighbor and leave it at that and give no further explanation. And, you know, sorry, but that's just not simply the way biblical exegesis works. All right, gentlemen, if you guys want to move on, or I'm sure we could debate that all day. Yeah, you and, could. I mean, these are completely different meanings in, in all these different versions. They're not similar, not, not at all. But he has no standard. So, I mean, just kind of, you know, wings it as he goes, his own personal opinion and preferences for at the moment, you know. There's no standard that uh, Brother Mark has. Well, let's, uh, as we hit the two and a half hour mark, I do want to thank you both for your time for this important debate. This has been uh, seriously a ton of fun and uh, you both are very knowledgeable on this topic. 
Yeah, and sophisticated, <laughs> my favorite word, <laughs> and uh, my favorite kinds of debates. <laughs> sophisticated, I civil. I words myself, so. Um, <laughs> well, uh, guys, let's wrap it up with this final question as we are now at the two and a half hour mark to the audience. Uh, thank you so much for sending in so many awesome questions. And if we didn't get to your question, save it for our uh, upcoming uh, KJV only and modern Bible translation related debate. So born again, RN question for uh, Will. Uh, we'll make this the final question for the night. And he asks, which version of the KJV is inspired? The 1611 or later versions that don't have the same wording or translation. They all have the same words, the same underlying Hebrew and Greek text that has never changed. And that's in sharp contrast to versions like uh, the ESV, the NIV, NASV. Uh, all they did, as I've pointed out before, is they changed uh, from Gothic to Roman print. They corrected some uh, printing errors. They updated the spelling of a lot of words instead of, well, a whole lot of words. I got them, but uh, they just updated the spelling. Blaney did, but they never changed the text. So the text has not been changed. The Hebrew and Greek underneath it has not been changed. And that is not true of these modern versions like ESV, New American Standard, NIV, et cetera. All right, I appreciate it, Will. Mark, floor is yours for uh, anything you'd like to add. Uh, well, as I pointed out uh, earlier, um, Will has, in fact, said that he uh, approves of the Cambridge over the Oxford um, and you can go look at his article on Joshua 19.2. Um, okay. But, you know, I would even, at, again, ask Will, okay, well, which Cambridge, yours or mine? Because as I demonstrated earlier, they differ from one another and in uh, <laughs> substantive ways, as uh, David Norton um, points out in his book. And I would recommend to everyone to uh, go get David Norton's book. Again, he is, as far as I can tell, the foremost scholar on the textual history of the King James Bible. And in fact, that's the name of his book. And um, it's very eye-opening. And um, uh, if you read it, you will recognize um, a lot of the uh, inconsistencies um, of the uh, King James only position based solely on the textual history of the King James Bible. All right, Mark, thank you for the response. Will, question was for you. So uh, you get the final word, go ahead. No, that's 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 it. Um, yeah, I've already said a lot of this stuff, and he's about the same points, and I've addressed them in the same way. And uh, um, yeah, the text has not changed. I don't know if he, maybe he's changing a capital letter for a small letter or something like that. That's been done before, but the text is the same. Uh, text has not changed. I'd like to see a concrete example of where a new King James Bible has come out where they actually changed the text. I don't believe such a thing exists. Maybe the spelling of a word is different, but it's the same word. So showeth and heweth are not the same words. Pardon me? Showeth and heweth are not the same words. No, that'd be because uh, showeth is wrong in that context. Heweth is the correct word. Yeah. All right, gentlemen. Uh, that wraps up the audience Q&A. That wraps up the debate. So there's another one in the books. I really enjoyed this. I am uh, really enjoying this, this topic. And, uh, you know, to all the debaters that have been willing to engage on the, uh, you know, textual criticism, modern translation, King, King James only uh, topic, I, I do want to thank 
you. And of course, for tonight, Will and Mark, thank you, uh, brothers, for doing this. And uh, let's do some final words, final thoughts. Mark, thank you for doing this. Thank you for being here. It was your first time. And I hope we will see uh, more of you in, in the future in, in terms of the debate community. So, Mark, final words, final thoughts. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think I'd be glad to. I, I thoroughly enjoyed my first live debate experience. So thank you, Donnie. And thank you again, Will. Uh, again, it, it got heated at points, but uh, uh, very much enjoyable and a great discussion, I think. And, um, you know, uh, for anyone, if anyone um, has any questions that uh, he or she did not get to ask, yeah, I, I can be found on Facebook um, or in uh, any number of places. But um, so, yeah, thank you both uh, again and uh, to the audience also for uh, tuning in uh, during this debate. My privilege, Mark. Thank you for those final words. Will, thank you again uh, for being here, brother. This is your second time. And I know we are uh, in talks for some more future debates that I'm looking forward to. So, Will, final words, final thoughts, and thanks again. I'm just uh, thankful for the opportunity to come here and, and discuss these things. I just praise God for his mercy to all of us that, uh, you know, we can be brothers in the Lord, that uh, God in his mercy has redeemed us and forgiven us our sins. And we're going to one day be in heaven and sin no more. Praise God. And we're going to see his face and we'll all be in agreement right now. We see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. And so, you know, we all look forward to that day. May it fast come. And uh, I just thank God for his precious words of truth and grace. And may he continue to reveal more and more of it to us, all of us. God bless. God bless. Will, Mark, thanks again for doing this. Thank you for the final thoughts and final words. I am going to let the debaters get out of here. I, I as usual, I'm going to stick around for a couple minutes going over reminders, announcements, and updates. And so, Will and Mark, thank you again. Uh, and uh, God bless you both. God bless you. Thank you. All right, there we go. That's two and a half hours. And I'm telling you, these debates are so much fun that time flies by. Uh, lately, during our debate marathons, we've been doing two and a half, three hour. Uh, we had a couple debates last week that went three and a half hours. So thank you to all the debaters. If it weren't for the debaters, we wouldn't have so many awesome debates. We've now hosted, I believe, 216 debates on all sorts of topics. Creation, evolution, of course, ancestry, soteriology, philosophy, nature of God, uh, Bible translation uh, issues, as we've been doing uh, lately, especially. And so if you're new to the channel, uh, just make sure to hit that subscribe button. Uh, we are almost at the 11,000 subscriber mark. So, uh, you know, you guys are the life and blood of this channel. And you guys are the reason why we're able to put out full-time content and, uh, you know, work in the ministry full-time. Uh, behind the scenes, I'm doing a ton as well. As you can see behind me, there's the Endogenous Retrovirus Handbook. And, uh, you know, it's a blessing to see that, that so many people are picking it up, sharing it around. I've done uh, several debates on that book uh, recently. So if you have not yet checked those out, please do. And you can actually find them on the homepage of our website. So I talked to our web, uh, website designer and stayingfortruthministries.com 
uh, it's all fully uh, updated uh, currently. We've got the, the main page is all uh, updated. And in the uh, video section, we got a whole new uh, section on end times theology, which um, I have a debate coming up next month on that topic. So end times debate, the rapture, pre-trib versus uh, post-trib pre-wrath, uh, me versus J.D. Morin. So I'm working on um, a book on this topic as well. And I'm also working on an updated, expanded version of my book here, Special Creation. Okay, so uh, throughout the night, this is pretty much what I'm working on. It's going to be a pretty well double the size of this. Uh, it's going to be all your most updated um, content and arguments pertaining to the separate ancestry versus universal ancestry debate. So, you know, there are a few uh, topics that I am uh, juggling currently, and I'm having a ton of fun doing it. And the reason why I can, uh, devote, uh, myself to full-time study and ministry is because of you guys. So thank you so much for the support. And, uh, slam RN says, I gave my copy of Irv ERV to my physician today to read. Amen. Amen. That is awesome. That is awesome. Okay. So I want to go over some reminders, guys. This is another debate, uh, marathon week. And this is the final one of the summer. So this summer we've had events nearly every single day um, and on all sorts of topics. Okay, so the fun continues tomorrow with Matt Slick, Stanley Terry. I'm pumped for this. There's been a lot of hype for this one. Uh, was Jesus fully God and fully man during his earthly ministry? That's tomorrow at eight o'clock. And then on Saturday, we've got another uh, soteriology debate. And last week we had... Second Peter 2.20 debated, Charles Jennings from the Layman Seminary in Merritt. If you're not yet uh, subscribed to Charles Jennings, please do so. Uh, he's putting out some great content. He's a fantastic debater, and he's got a lot of knowledge. So this debate uh, was last week, and now we got another um, verse-specific debate. So James 2, the great James 2 debate, uh, David Preston and... and Charles Jennings. And of course, uh, we'll have Sunday off as usual. Uh, that's the one day I like to um, not schedule stuff on. Keep that a family day for, you know, for everybody. Keep that a day where we kind of uh, take a break from the debates. But we're back here first thing next week, Monday, Dr. Dino, Dr. J. Bundy, Evolution on Trial, Kent, 300th debate. So I think he's setting records. <laughs> uh, that's going to be awesome. Uh, Siegel. Mark Siegel was in the chat uh, tonight asking questions. He's debating Kent next month, the geologic column and the fossil record as uh, his specific lines of evidence that he's looking for in terms of evidence for evolution. And that will be debated next month. Uh, and Steve Christie from the Born Again RN uh, YouTube channel. Uh, my brother here, he is. Uh, he was in the chat asking some fantastic questions tonight. Uh, seriously, guys, so many great questions tonight. We had um, what seemed to be close to an hour audience Q&A, and I love it. I love how engaged you guys are, you know, the best audience on YouTube. <laughs> and we've got a debate community that is growing, and uh, more and more people are sending in requests to do debates on all sorts of topics. Debate's important, okay, because critical thinking is important, and we uphold critical thinking here on Standing for Truth by hosting so many debates because you know as they say you, you, you can be confident with a certain position and uh you know until you get into the hot seat and you're cross-examined so there's no better way uh to come to um you know to, to discuss truth by uh entering the octagon and, and discussing 
uh, differences in, in a sophisticated and respectful way. So uh, born again, RN, my pleasure, brother, another guy, um, another brother here who's putting out some great content. Please do subscribe to him. And of course, he's going to be here October. We've actually got some big debates for October. So I just uh, finished confirming a couple more epic soteriology related debates. We got some solid science related debates that, that are in the works for October as well. Uh, so this one is, uh, although Robert Syngenis has been here before twice debating um Salvation by Faith alone, he debated Kelly Powers and uh, Dr. Bob Wilkin. Uh, both debates were awesome. Uh, but this one specifically is going to be on the Marian Dogmas debate. So coming up and uh, coming up quick, talk and treat. Laughter is the best medicine, brother. So he says, I got some really good laughs tonight. Uh, thanks. Thanks, guys. So um, Anastasia, good to see you. And uh, I think a month ago is when we had our uh, big end times theology open mic debate for nearly three hours. And it was awesome seeing you join and ask some fantastic questions. So, yes, I'm, I'm always up for doing uh, interviews. I've done several of them over the, the summer and I believe they should be uploaded on the channel. So, again, guys, this is uh, another uh, debate marathon week. Today, of course, King James Bible debate. And tomorrow, Matt Slick debate. Matt Slick versus Stanley Terry. And on Saturday, Charles Jennings versus uh, David Preston. Uh, also coming up, this will be, I believe, the last debate of the summer on the 31st. Turretin fan who holds to the eternal conscious torment position, debating CJ Cox from the Synagogue YouTube channel, taking the annihilationism position. So I'm excited for this one. The great hell debate. I think we've only uh, in 216 debates. I think we've only had one other debate on this topic. Uh, so definitely an important topic. And again, that's coming up. Uh, final debate of this uh, month, I believe. Then uh, the fun continues right away. So everybody has seen the trailer that uh, that we put out. And uh, again, thank you so much, brother. Um, I'm glad there's so many uh, fellow like-minded uh, debate addicts. <laughs> uh, you guys make it fun. And yes, from September 5th to the 9th, technically, presentations-wise, we'll go into the 8th. We've got uh, two speakers per day, uh, and then we're ending it all on the 9th with an evolution debate. Um, so lots of shows, uh, you know, two, four, six, eight, yeah, about nine or 10 shows because um, I believe we're going to be squeezing in another presentation on the ninth too, uh, right before the debate that ends this conference. So this starts on the fifth and uh, tons of speakers. Myself, of course, I'll be debunking the best evidence for evolution. Matt Naylor, who runs the ministry with me, he's got a presentation, must watch presentation. He's been working on for uh, what seems to be a few months titled Genesis Genetics. Of course, we got the legends themselves from the creation research team, John Mackay, the creation guy, Joseph Hubbard. These two brothers are two of my favorite uh, young, earth, young earth creationist apologists. They are, they are warriors for the faith. So they got some fantastic uh, presentations for us on uh, the geologic column, as well as dinosaurs in the Bible. Uh, we've got Dr. Jerry Bergman, who's going to be here um, giving a presentation. Obviously, our very own Professor David McQueen. 
George Bond. CJ is going to be countering compromise. I'm excited for that presentation. We've got T-Rock, who's done a ton of creation evolution debates. He's going to be refuting isochron dating. So he's going to be uh, giving a very cool and technical presentation on, on dating methods, guys. So again, if you're not yet subscribed, to uh, do please make sure to hit that subscribe button. And that's pretty well all that comes to mind, guys. So again, two more debates, one tomorrow, one on Saturday. Then we got a day off. And then uh, next week, the fun continues. So thanks again uh, for everybody's support. Do please check out the website, sandfortruthministries.com. It is fully updated. And um, I've also got a brother that I've hired to. Uh, so it's going to be a project, big project. Uh, and so again, if you want to help support these projects, feel free to become a Standing for Truth patron. If it's on your heart, you can also support us directly through the website. We got a big uh, podcast project that we're going to be working on for the next month. And on the website, we're going to have a separate section for podcasts. And uh, we're going to slowly upload in podcast form. And uh, they're going to be you know, fully edited, very professional. Uh, it's a big project. Um, and we're going to have uh, as many as of our debates and interviews that we've done uploaded in, in podcast form. So I'm really pumped for that as well. So lots going on at Standing for Truth Ministries, uh, Doki Doki Bible Club. Uh, brother, thank you so much for the links posted. And again, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, I'm not sure if there's any after shows or anything tonight, but I'm going to go take a break. And uh, tonight I'll be working on... Um, the books that I am hoping to uh, complete and get out within the next couple months. So again, everybody, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you tomorrow at eight o'clock with Matt Slick and Stanley Terry. Stand for Truth is out.